Everybody, hiring can feel hiring. <laughs> That's how I say it. Hiring, 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 hiring can feel like finding, uh, like, like it can feel like trying to find a needle in a haystack. But when you post a job on ZipRecruiter, their matching technology finds these qualified candidates for you and invites them to apply. So while other companies give you too many options, ZipRecruiter finds you the needle in the haystack. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash badchristian. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N, ZipRecruiter. Now, also our show is sponsored by uh, Stamps.com. Stop wasting time at the post office. Go to Stamps.com. Click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and enter our code BADCHRISTIAN for a four-week trial plus free postage and a digital scale. That's stamps.com, promo BADCHRISTIAN. And lastly, this show is brought to you by Marriage Supply. We own Marriage Supply. It's the best way you can support this podcast as well by uh, supporting your marriage. Damn it. So if you're, you, know, you want to spice up stuff in the bedroom, go to marriagesupply.com. Matt, how you doing? I'm doing very good. I am what thrilled you, because Robin to? will be here in a little bit. So Robin know, is I, a fun guest. So I'm glad to have him back. If you he's he's yes, it, fun is uh, an arbitrary word. I I think that he is awesome and really entertaining, and uh, and I like seeing you and him together. So I get <laughs> I I feel like I'm getting to listen to a podcast coming up because it's like. You are like you're a little giddy. You're like, oh, I'm going to talk to Robin Hanson, and mm-hmm. it's going to be like it's something. It, he gives you something I can't. And in our friendship marriage, you and I kind of <laughs> have a friendship marriage. I can't. I can't go there. So this is like a thruple. I'm well, opening. I'm. I'm letting you go. Explore. You know, go out there, that's explore, true. and see what you. As long as you come back to me, I'm okay well, with Robin gonna, being that's a why I think part it's of this. Kind of pay it, pay it back though. I appreciate that because. It, that what I wanted to talk to him today about is aliens, and I felt like aliens is so pop culture yeah. that the thing that I, the way I'm interested in the way his mind works is converged on a topic that has some popular interest in some tangential way at least. So I was just thinking, with all the alien stuff out there that these right. days, the you know that's kind of in the thing. So I thought that would be fun for everybody and me too. So I'm still excited. He'll be here in about ten minutes or so. Well, I think the way he thinks really uh, aligns with the way you think, and it's exciting for you, and it literally is fun. Now, I think it's fun in maybe some different ways, but I'm just saying that, that like, like Robin Hanson is fun because if I, if I was going to say he's fun, it's because it kind of feels like he doesn't give a shit what he's getting ready to say because he wants to say it. Like he's he's thought about it, 
And he knows it might even be uh, potentially polarizing, or it might make some people go, oh, well, you know, a little uncomfortable or even upset with him or a little bit. But he's going to say it, and yeah. that is awesome. In this day and age, yeah, that's is. getting more and more rare, <laughs> right? Isn't it? Like, I mean, a voice that says, hey, I've really thought about this, and this is what I think. Well, it's you're always convinced that he's not trying to play any popularity game of any type. Right. And so no. you do so the things no. he, he is claiming, you know that he's you know, you you feel very confident that he believes them in a way that you right. don't for entertainers, let's say, or anybody right. that has that's try, you know what I mean? So there's something yes. about the the types that he's always willing to go to places that are messy <laughs> and it's oh, not usually sure. to in in a way that's going to really benefit him. So that to me always feels like okay then, you got to listen when somebody's really telling you something you don't want to hear. <laughs> Yeah, that's just so fun. I uh, well, uh, it's my birthday week, and it's really funny. Like you as you get the old, number, or you're not at, that you're not at that level. Are you? How old? Oh are you? no, 43? I'm forty four, forty five. You're forty five. Forty five. I would have not got old. that right. <laughs> <laughs> I know. It's crazy. I'm 45 oh, years old. Isn't that crazy? Yes. Like I mean, like it's serious. And 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 we had. I mean. It seems like yesterday, but real debate on, I was like, man, I'm not going to play any shows when I'm 40. I'm not going to do Emory and this, this podcast. I got I had to, to be a worship leader. The, uh, the, the, Remember I, told, I said, I got to be a worship leader. This, <laughs> this shit's going away. It's gone. Playing rock shows and everything. I mean, and here's what's hilarious. Not only am I 45, we're in a pandemic and our bands is, mm-hmm. is better than ever. Our band yep. and podcast are better than ever. It's insane. <laughs> like, I mean, we have great fans. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. I mean, people that are really supporting this podcast, supporting our band, all that stuff over at Emeryland and and with the BC Club, all that. I mean, it's insane. And I would, I promise you, I would have bet a lot of money if, when you told me. Let's see. So, huh? Our band was really like the the. Really killing it when I was probably about 30, right? About 30. Yeah. If you'd have told me a decade from now you are going to be doing this, I would have bet a lot of money. I'd probably bet $10,000 that, no, we would not. I would not be in a band and, of course, not a podcast. I didn't even know what a podcast was when I was 30. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. 15 years later, and I this is how I make my living? Yeah. Isn't that insane? But, I mean, I would have told you, uh, I mean, uh, of course, just that. But think about if I would have told, if you'd have told me about, this other currency called crypto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it really is crazy. I mean, things really change, and so I mean, that's the thing. Whatever you know, they everything is sounds so dumb to say, but everything changes so crazy. But so many things stay the exact same that it gets yeah. confusing because you think about the future and you're always wrong, <laughs> you know. But it's yep. way crazier than you thought in some ways you weren't thinking right about, and so you had to both like uh, all the streets kind of look the same. As they do in the fifties, if you see an aerial photo of a neighborhood right. with houses in it, it's kind of the same. Right? Yeah. And then you think about how much your life is different. Well, you could know what p- your job is because it, it, you didn't even know about podcasting, and that's your job. Or and what's going to happen with crypto? And that, that happens so fast. I know. And it's, and then it and but it'll when you get there to that crazy another place, it'll also feel the same stupid shit just like this too. No, like I it'll know. feel. Even when you get to that crazy future you couldn't imagine, it'll still be the same old shit. <laughs> no, I know. Well, that's one of the things I want to uh, ask. Uh, maybe I wonder if Robin would say that, but the 
is technology speeding up? Well, I mean, uh, well, hold on. Before you answer, you know, one thing that's always going to be important though is who you hire for your business. There's nothing that could be more. I don't think there's anything that's more important. I mean, it's like God, your marriage. And who you the right hire than the right person, my friend. That's right. If you're a business owner's hiring, you probably face a lot of challenges when it comes to finding the right person for your role. Uh, I think probably the biggest one now is not knowing where to post the job to reach the right people because right. there's a, you know there's a lot of websites out there. Seems there's a lot like a of blog of places to things. Uh-huh. There's a lot of ways yeah. to do stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, apps probably there's a, there's a million things out there. And what are people paying attention to? Most people don't know. It can be, it can try, it can be like trying to find a needle in a haystack, even to just all of that stuff. So, what you got to do is post your job on ZipRecruiter because it gets sent to over a hundred of those top job sites with one click. So that is the solution to that problem right there. Then ZipRecruiter's matching technology finds people with the right skills and experience for your job and actively invites them to apply. In fact, ZipRecruiter is so effective that four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter, they get a quality candidate within the first day. So it's no wonder over 2.3 million businesses have come to ZipRecruiter for their hiring needs. So while other companies overwhelm you with way too many options, ZipRecruiter finds you what you're looking for, the needle in the haystack. And right now, you can try ZipRecruiter for free at this web address, ZipRecruiter.com slash BadChristian. Once again, remember to go to this unique place, ZipRecruiter.com slash B-A-D-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Mm-hmm. So so are we living through more technology than our parents? Well, Robin's here, so we can ask him directly. Let's bring it in. Hello. Hey, Robin. Hey, hey Robin. How's it going? All right. How are you? Doing good. good. Thank you for joining us. You remember uh, when you came on last time? It was just about a year and a month ago. Really? It was that long ago? Yeah, it was was in January, I believe. It was we were talking because we were talking about the pandemic to come, and that was before we really had it. It was right before (laughs) anybody really had a grip on it. So, yeah, it might be interesting to go back and listen because it was we didn't understand what anybody was talking about at the time, hardly. We were just getting on board with understanding what was to come. Now we know, but we're so sick of it and tired of it. We don't want to talk about it. We don't it. care. That's right. That's Everybody's right. running to Florida and Texas because they we just know wanna... every, We know all the mistakes that were made, and we're too tired to re- <laughs> everybody down blame them for it. We just want to get past it all. That that really is true, right? Like, people are really just exhausted from the, the idea of it, you think? Like, I mean, like... It does feel like people are ready to take more risks, if whatever those risks might be, how, however high. But people are just like, okay, I did. What, how, what am I going to do? Is is that where we're at, kind of? Well, in a lot of people, but a lot of people are still, you know, hungry for the fight. So yeah, that's true. You know, people are, I mean, to fight each other. I mean, not against right. the pandemic, but you know, <laughs> this moral crusade and. <laughs> well, I well, got a question right before you hopped on. I, I was asking Matt. I was, I was today's my birthday, by the way. Happy uh, birthday! Yeah, well, thank you very much. Twenty-seven, but, uh, twenty-eight. Wow. Yeah, exactly. No, no, <laughs> forty-five. But I, I was just thinking through all the technology I've lived through. Like I remember the technology of uh, the video store with VHS oh, yeah. cassettes, I right? And then they swapped over. Blockbuster comes along, and then they swap over to DVDs, and I was like, oh, my God. Well, now you got to buy a DVD player. You know, you had this VHS yeah. that cost a lot of money, and now you need the DVD player because it's better. Everybody tells you, you know. Yeah. And then, you know, and then all of a sudden we're at the Internet, and now everything has exploded. 
do you think that we're living it have i lived through more technology than like my mom and dad i mean it it, it or is it just appear that way to me well uh, so you know economists have this measure of economic growth as a measure of change and that's been relatively constant for a while it's, it's down a bit but not a lot you know in the, in the us but say not worldwide so by that measure it's just been a constant change for a long time but by a different measure, say around 1930, things were changing in your face. And over time, we've managed to make a lot of change happen behind the scenes, <laughs> out of your face, where if you don't want to pay attention to it, you don't have to. You know, if you think back around 1930, people were, you know, leaving the farm for the city and right. getting refrigeration, cars, <laughs> a radio, just, just, just a huge range of things that were all like dramatically changing their life. And they were in their face. They, they, they couldn't ignore it really they they had to uh, deal with it so by the comparison of that we have changed pretty easy <laughs> yeah that's true it, i guess it feels like at no other time has the world been this connected so that 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 technology of like some somebody inventing something in another country i i will immediately know it today or something you know or it, it could affect yeah. me today that that connectivity maybe is what i'm talking about but you're right i, I didn't even think about that like there was no cars, and all of a sudden there was cars. <laughs> that would be a pretty big one. <laughs> right, but there was like 10 things like that happening all at the same time. <laughs> right. Mm-hmm. Plus all the medical development over that time. Is right. Absolutely, right. You yeah. know, antibiotics. and yeah, just, so, It was just a huge range of things. And, of course, deciding between, say, capitalism and communism was, yeah, was a big true. issue at the time. Yeah. And, you know, I mean. Still is, kind of. <laughs> right. But, I mean, at that time it was very pressing, right? I mean, right, right. Yeah, that's very fascinating. Yeah. Um, Robin, I wanted to spend a little bit of time and try to get a good understanding um, of just exact, spend a little bit more time getting a good grip on who you are and how your mind works the way it does, and then get into the alien topic a little bit. I'm I'm happy to follow your lead. So as usual, we'll follow your lead. So you'll take me where where we go. Uh, Yes. I just got to say, you know, you have to especially lead on the on what I am because I look ordinary to me. I know. <laughs> yeah. so you have to show me how I look from a distance and say, well, you know, you look this way from a distance, Robin, you understand that? And I go, oh, okay, we'll talk about that. But you have to remind me of the ways I look Okay. <laughs> well, I'm going to go in by saying that your blog, Overcoming Bias, it says on it that, the, that it's uh, this is a blog on why we believe, uh, why we believe, and what we do, why we pretend otherwise, how we might do better, and what our descendants might do if they don't all die. That is your the description of, yeah. your, of your blog. And, and all that territory is just so fun to me um, and resonant. And I just really am curious, of how did you come to arrive at that being the centrality of your uh, website and the the way you've arranged your life in just such a way that you have tenure at a major university and then get to tackle topics and do things that uh, that you know as you said last time and people know you go into topics other people find icky or don't want to look yeah. at and so I'm just curious what is the what led you to that place you know in life well so in terms of my place in the world it's a combination of an unusual preference and getting lucky. So <laughs> getting lucky was basically getting tenured. A bunch of things went right. And then it happened that I got tenure. Uh, you know, a lot of people get lucky and get tenure. Uh, I happen to be one of them and it's a great deal. I recommend it. 
but it's a long odd. So you have to take a big chance to get it. But if you get it, it's great. Uh, the, 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 the unusual preference is most people, when they get tenure, they don't actually change what they do much. So, you know, the world of academia is this very constrained competitive world where if you want to succeed, you have to do a bunch of things, you know, better than other people. And, and, and you know, if you don't, then you don't win. And people who are competing to play that game and win uh, tend to be very driven and very ambitious. And then when they achieve this milestone of tenure, uh, they tend to just keep going along. They, there's more milestones. They could become a journal editor. They could become you know, write review articles, they could be, you know, run a foundation and fund things. I mean, there's just a lot of things you can do along the same ambitious path. But if you had a separate sort of, you know, thing you wanted to do and tent, you know, the whole academic game was constraining you, that is you, you wanted to study what you thought was interesting, but the world didn't think that was interesting. And you had to do what they wanted in order to get tenure. Then at tenure time, you might switch and say, well, <laughs> Now I've got the freedom and I can study what I want. And now I'm going to study these things that I think are interesting. So that's me. And that seems naturally to me, but most people aren't like that. Most yeah. people mainly just wanted to win the game. They didn't really care that much what they studied or how uh, yeah. it was about winning the game. And so they just keep wanting to win. So, but what's fascinating there is the things that you, so first of all, most people, <laughs> they just want to win the game. So they don't even care what they study, but where does the drive come from to so much so want to study the things you want to study? That that in itself is is a unique quality that you know things that you want to study, and at, you know how did that unfold in your life? If you don't mind, all the way back in childhood, especially when a lot of your stuff is counter to what people want <laughs> right. to listen well, to. It's very so counter. The, the way I saw my history was. I was trying to form sort of a metric or, or map in my mind of the different topics that existed and, and how each one mattered and why each one mattered. Okay, but slow and, down uh, from that. That <laughs> I don't think most people do that. Right. <laughs> well, I mean, most people have a map like that, uh, but they might they might focus on the parts of the map that talk about how they could win. Where all the prizes are that they could win. Right. Uh, as opposed to like what's just actually fundamentally important in the world. But so, what age I mean, what age are you <laughs> aware of these types of this decision making for your paths in life cuz I mean a tenure track is it start that starts in well, adolescence on so, college so prep I'm an classes. Old, remember I'm an old returning student. <laughs> I uh went back to graduate school at the age of 34 with two kids age 0 and 2 then did a 4 year PhD, 2 year postdoc and then, you know, a tenure track position six years until I got a professorship. So I was pretty old and returning at, at that point. And what was the, I mean, I don't know your biography that well, though. I'm, I'm curious. How did, how did you get into that situation, make that choice? But I really am th curious about your thought right. pattern so, as a kid. So, was it similar? So, so I, I would say early, I mean, we all pick models early on, right? We, we all pick our heroes and, and sort of who the icons are that we admire and what we want to be like. And early on, somebody like Einstein was my model. <laughs> somebody who just had a different way of thinking about things and managed to persuade people that that was important and true and, you know, had a big, important topic and, you know, had an insight and, you know, made people listen. <laughs> and I wanted to be an Einstein, I, you know, and that seemed obvious that that was what other people also kind of respected and that that was the game. And so even if I realized later that that wasn't the game most people were playing, <laughs> And even if later, say, Einstein became less popular than Steve Jobs or other sort of icons that other people picked on as their heroes, 
you know, the, the heroes we pick when they're 15 or 20 tend to stick with us for the rest of our life. And we're still trying to be those heroes, even if the rest of the world doesn't care. So for me, I wanted to be someone like Einstein who wanted to understand things. Although I was, you know, also open to like, well, is physics the most important thing or are there other things? And so I would try to learn as much as I could. And I'd have a sense in my mind of what is important. So initially physics seemed really important because it was like the basics of all the other things. Mm -hmm. And there seemed to be big things at stake in physics, you know, the universe and vast potential powers, you know, military conquest. And there's just all these things physics would seem to be able to do. and, and, And so I wanted to understand all that. And I did, you know, come to understand physics pretty well. And then over time, I came to realize, well, there's these other things that are important too. And often they're more the limitation in in us making our world better. And so I might switch to focusing on what seemed more important. And I I was switching over in time. So that is, I kept changing my mind about what seemed to be the most important. And then I would change my field and focus to study what at the time seemed the most important. And then as I learned more, my more refined detailed map of the world said, well, yeah, that's important, but this other thing might be even more important. (laughs) And I I kept doing that over and over again for a long time, Mm -hmm. which I guess most people don't do. Most people pick a field relatively early and then they just stick with it. And if it happens to be important, lucky. And if it happens to be less (laughs) important, then still they're winning a game. Exactly. Yes. I I, uh, identify with with that kind of way too of thinking. Um, Did you think that Einstein and physics then, I mean, that's the most fundamental, that's the granddaddy of that whole thing is to have the special insight in the most important, in the most fundamental way. So when you were studying physics, you were hoping to get to the edge of the fundamental understandings and have a key insight or something like that. And then, but, sorry, I gravitated how did you get what seemed to me the most important physics questions, the most foundational, the, the biggest ones that I'm the most re- was writing on. So foundations of quantum mechanics, foundations of thermodynamics, foundations of cosmology, uh, you know, these big basic questions that, you know, most people admitted were really basic. And often the reason other people would set them aside, they say, well, that's really basic, but it's really hard to make progress on. Mm-hmm. And they would say, well, you know, they want to focus on a problem. They know how to make progress on. And I was usually more, I'm just going to keep banging my head against the most important questions under the, you know, arrogant, confident assumption that if I bang long enough and hard enough, I can make progress. And it turned out that's true. You, you can actually make a lot of progress if you just keep banging your head long and hard enough at the hard questions. So I think people often just don't have the patience. So, I mean, like, the usual party conversation, as you know, is flits for two minutes on this topic and two minutes on that topic, et cetera, all the way down the line. And I'm more, let's pick one topic and spend an hour, or five hours on it yeah, and go all the way in, all the way to the bottom, like, and really work it out. I mean, and so that's the sort of attitude I would have to any of these topics. As long as I think, oh, that's an important topic and you seem to know something about it and you also think it's important. I'm happy for us to just... <laughs> Go after it hour after hour because like we we'll slowly chip away at it and make some progress and that's that's wonderful to me rather than flitting around a hundred different topics in that time like a normal party conversation repeat what anybody else might have said about it but not really making any progress. Well, how did you get off of physics then? If that you know, how come not bang? What made you specifically not continue bang your head on? Saw all these interesting topics that were not in physics, and then I realized that if I was going to choose physics, I would have to like limit myself to the range of interesting topics that were within that border and all these other interesting topics beckoned. And I 
you know, like couldn't make that commitment. I, I these other things seemed in some sense more important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was going to go with what seemed more important. So at the moment, so first I switched from physics to philosophy of science. That is first I said, people told me, oh, well, you know, physics works because science works. And I, oh, okay. And science is this fundamental thing and it's important. And then people had all these words about what is science. And I wanted to figure that out. So I went and studied philosophy of science and after a while, figured out, well, there, there is no there, there, <laughs> there is no science, there, there is no such thing, there is no coherent concept, there are just all these fields of study and different ways to do it, and so that was the answer to that question, but then I went back to physics for a while, and then I read a bunch of stuff about exciting stuff happening in Silicon Valley at the time, uh, hypertext publishing and AI, and I said, wow, that's really important, <laughs> and so I decided to leave physics and go out to Silicon Valley to pursue those things because they seem like they just had more potential of having a big impact on the world and having a big impact on how we think about important things. Did you really go to Stanford just and sit in and get education? I, I did. So when I went to Silicon Valley, uh, after having been at University of Chicago, I sort of weaseled my way into uh, an AI group at Lockheed after uh, six months you know, probation elsewhere. And then I uh, hung out with people who were there doing hypertext publishing, which is now what we call the web. And, you know, as part of my job, I got access to Stanford Library. So I could just go sit down in the halls of the library and read as many books as I wanted. And I think like after two years, what I did is I made the deal where instead of working 40 hours a week, I would work 30 hours a week and live on a 30 hour a week salary and have more time to just study whatever I wanted. And then one of the ways to do that would be to sit in on classes. I didn't do that many of those, but, uh, you know, that nobody minded, nobody really looks out for that. Nobody cares. As long as you seem like the other students, they are happy to just let you participate. Yeah. So that, that's funny because Robin has the line, or I don't know how you say that, but you can get a Stanford is, you know, education's about the credentials because you can get the education for a Stanford education for free. You just, show you just up don't and get sit the down. degree. You just showed up. <laughs> yeah. You can go to class and everything. And that's true for most schools. I mean, as long as you, you know, you, you're not, you know, smell or, you know, disrupt every, everybody or somehow thing. But if you just, you know, go along and participate the way others do, then, then you can. But again, most people who know that still don't do it because they want the degree. Right. And you got to have the credential. Well, that, and then they, later on, that was my big choices, I eventually decided, yeah, I needed to go back and get the credential. So that's when I went back to grad school at the age of 34 with two kids age zero and two to try to get the credential. And by that time, I was much more focused on, you know, doing the grunge work or less pleasant things that I wouldn't have chosen for myself because that was the price you would pay. Previously, I hadn't really been willing to do that. (laughs) You know, when I was younger, I was just going to study what I was interested in. As soon as it stopped being interesting... (laughs) I was going to go on to the next thing. And now I realized, well, knowing a lot isn't enough. If you think you have a contribution, the way to get the world to listen to it is you'll have to have credentials and contacts. And so that was my strategy is to go back and get those credentials and contacts. I I don't want to throw us off here, but just if we can answer this quickly, with, with all of that study and even like sitting in on a Stanford class or whatever, and now that you're a tenured professor, is this, this education system, is it, is it kind of just, fucked up are we are like is it is it going away like i mean <laughs> it's 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 both yes it's fucked up and it's not going away <laughs> it's not going away you don't think you don't, right. you don't. It's, it's so unfortunately it's it's been bad for a long time so so the mere fact that it's bad doesn't mean it's changing it's been very stably bad for for a very long time 
Uh, you don't think the pandemic changed this though? I feel like no. more more and more people are going to realize. Wait, I can just study what I want to study and become an expert uh, in it. But they, they already realize that. But studying what you want to study doesn't make you a credentialed expert. It doesn't make you a recognized expert. It just means you know some things, right? No, I agree. But but who is the the body now? Do you do we still respect the body that credentials you? That's what I like. I mean, yeah, I, we do <laughs> as much as we ever did. I mean, honestly, you, you might overestimate how much people used to respect. Maybe so. I, so, I just, so for example, there, it was always a stereotype of pointy head professors and ivory, ivory tower idiots. <laughs> right. That, that was, that's long been a stereotype. Most people out in the world have denigrated educated people correctly for their being out of touch and you know, obsessed with their own rules and our own curricula, but nevertheless, people were stuck in an equilibrium and still are where that's the main way that young people at least are credentialed and selected. But, but it seems to me that people are going to go, wait a minute, I got to go do this for four years. Yeah. Now I I, I don't, I don't see that continuing. (laughs) They've been doing that for half a century. So I know, I think, I think, I I think it's over. Well, how about this? My, my kids, this whole year, we live in Illinois, live in Champaign, Illinois, and the entire, my, my kids are in elementary school the entire year. They bo- mostly did virtual for about two and a half hours. And now that is considered good enough. So w- next year when they go back for f- seven hours, now they-, they need those extra hours, but they didn't need them this year. I, I just think people are going to start saying, wait a minute. What am I? D- I think people are going to start more homeschooling. I think people are going to say, wait a minute, I'm not going to spend $40,000 on education when I might just pay. What, what if I paid you $40,000 and you taught me? So, so for getting a job, it's the last few years of school that kind of have to be very standard. And then you can deviate a lot more in younger ages to the extent that the last few years of school won't punish you for that. So if colleges are willing to look at your homeschooled high school degree, then you can homeschool high school. Or if high schools are willing to look at your homeschooled you know, elementary curriculum, right. then you have freedom to homeschool at the earlier ages because these last few stages that are the main credentialing ones aren't punishing you for that. Now, if, if college suddenly decided that they weren't, they, they weren't going to approve of homeschoolers because, you know, they didn't have the right diversity training or whatever, then, uh, then you'd have to, you know, push back earlier when you had to start following the rules. So at the moment you can homeschool earlier, you aren't punished for that. So if you and your family find that congenial, uh, that's fine. But, but the point is that employers later on, they're not really set up to evaluate your homeschooling college yet. degree <laughs> yet. Well, that, but, that's the challenge, right? right? When would they ever? So I think the main competitor that to education would be say something like Google or McKinsey or right. a particular job would, you know, take you in as an apprentice in that job for four years and then evaluate you by standardized comparison. See, that's the key thing. Most people who go work at a job for four years, they aren't evaluated in a way that can be compared in a standardized way to, you know, most of the rest of the population. So that's what colleges do differently is, is they really have standardized curricula that then you can compare people across colleges. And that's the thing later employers are looking for that, that, how does this person compare? And, and that's the hard thing to get out of workplaces because they're mostly interested in having you do work right. naturally, which doesn't naturally standardize and make it comparable. But if you compromised on that and did whatever work was productive while still standardizing, then that's more of a plausible hope. But, but that but would I take think- a consortium of these firms. Just one wouldn't do it. Basically, you'd have to have maybe 10 big firms all of whom agreed on some standard ways they rated and compared their employees uh, 
you know, over a four-year curriculum. And then that set of 10 companies with their four-year program could compete with colleges. I, I just feel like that feels like an old system that is going away though. I, like right, right now, I feel like if you had 10 people and you didn't know their you, credentials, you ever heard of marriage? Yeah, <laughs> I'm in one. <laughs> it's an old system. It's people have complained. It's about going, it for a really it's long going time. away. Marriage is totally oh, for 100%. That marriage, I, of course it's going away. You know, I mean, you got to study that then, Rob. Marriage no. is gone. That is democracy. Not, is democracy an old system that's going away? It, I believe it, so. It's probably. Bad. It's got a lot of big flaws, but I, I think they're all, something's yeah. old doesn't mean it's going away. You have no, to no, no. a better I, option, right? No, no, I agree with you, but the better option would be why would you spend four years and a ton of money in debt? Everybody right now, the number one, one of the biggest yeah. issues in America is debt from college money. And I think a lot of people are going to go, wait a minute. What if I just, I mean, what if you went to a company and said, I'm going to give you $40,000 or $50,000 or $100,000 and let me work right. for you for four years and I'll prove it to you. That would be better than, I mean, you, you don't think that everybody coming out of college is super worthy or, or going to well, be a well, great worker. Say you do prove it to them after four years, but they know that you haven't proved it to anyone else, right? So that means they don't really have to offer you a good deal because they know you're worth something to them, but you're not really worth anything to anybody else because nobody else believes that you're any good. So the key thing is to create True. this shared credential where after four years, they show how good you are. And that's something right. you can show to other people that who believe it. That's the thing that colleges are producing that most workplaces don't. It's an intermediate form of something that's to believe in, like a currency or something. The credential itself is like a token. But it feels a little made up. It's widely shared, right? Yeah, but, so, but it's I mean, widely shared, though. So you could get a job in podcasting, say, and you could be a good podcaster. And then other people in your podcasting world might know about that. And then you could move to those other places who know about your work because, you know, m most people in a job, they have contacts and they have a little world around them who also knows about them. But right. your ability to advertise how good you are is limited to that world, right? Whereas with a college degree, you see, everybody knows that Princeton is, is a great college and everybody knows that if you're a graduate from a good department with high, high grades in Princeton, that's, that's a credential that's understood very widely. That's the thing you're trying to produce. And that's the thing that schools have so far been the only place that does produce. And that's why they are paid so much. But I yeah. would still push back on what jobs are you talking about? Like I, I went to college for elementary education, but I became a hell of a musician. And I, I, I you know, I, I, I have a, a band that has been very successful. Didn't go to school for podcasting, became a podcaster. I mean, what, what, what job, like if you went into school for business or didn't go to school for business, but you were great on right. Wall Street. I mean, the the thing, like I can see medical, like a doctor having yeah, that accreditation yeah. and stuff like that. But I, I actually do think you could prove a lot of your work well, outside so, so of the school. Base, the basic fact of the world is in the last few centuries, we've gotten rich. And the main reason we've gotten rich, I'd say, is because we've learned how to manage and produce large organizations. You know, three centuries ago, most everybody was in a small you know, firm of 10 people or less. Yeah. And now we're in firms of hundreds and thousands and hundreds of thousands, right? That's the main thing that's happened. So there are some professions where you can just show how good you are very clearly in what you do. And then you can advertise that anywhere, right? I mean, if you're a boxer, I guess, for example, right, right, right. Uh, then you, you can just show anybody how good you are. So then you don't need credentials. You just show how good you are. But in most large organizations, people at the top aren't sure what everybody's doing farther down or if they're doing a good job. And if somebody farther down says, I'm hiring these people because I think they're the best, 
the people above say, but how do we know that they're the best? Right. And so unless, and a lot of divisions in large organizations, it's just really hard for them to show they're actually being efficient and productive. And so that's why we, we go so much to these credentials is people at the top don't trust people below them and they can't just accept their word for things. And so they're looking for this outside validation that, yeah, you're, you must be hiring good people because credential. Mm-hmm. And, I, you know, in a small organization, like, you know, when you and your podcast firm, if you can tell that, that somebody's a good podcaster, you can keep them on and promote them or whatever, because you right. don't have a boss looking over your shoulder saying, how do you know that guy's any good? But um, that's but, what I think, but I think that's where we're headed. For example, like Scott Galloway says, if you're a uh, social media marketer, why in the hell would you do any other place than Facebook or Google? Right. And so it feels like there's only big and small now. So if, if you're small, it doesn't matter about the credentials anyway. And then big, they're going to train you anyway. Like you, you, like you said with Google, my wife well, they is want taking, to know who to train. <laughs> but well, well, my wife is taking the Coursera, uh, the yeah. new Google Coursera uh, for human resources, and, uh, and it's just a it's a short. I think it's going to take her six months or whatever. It costs about four hundred bucks. But I believe that Google's going. Wait a minute. Let's get some people in here. Get them in the funnel. Move them in there. I'm just wondering. The old system, I, I understand. I agree with you. I don't think just because something old is old. I mean, I believe in the Bible, so yeah. <laughs> to an extent. And so I don't, I don't want to get rid of the old stuff. I don't want to get rid of the Constitution, all that stuff. But I do think there is some real uh, change happening on the education level where people go, wait a minute. I went to college and still all I ended up with debt and still making, you know, $17 right. an hour. So in futurism, there are these standard things that futurists have been forecasting for a long time, not because they fit the p- pattern of what's happening is because people want to hear. And one of the things people have long wanted to hear is that big bureaucratic corporations are dinosaurs and they're going away and they haven't been going away. <laughs> They've been getting bigger and more entrenched. Right. And that's yeah. just been the long-term trend. And that's going to be the long-term trend. I'm sorry. That's <laughs> quarter one of my sticks, if you like. I'm going to go with like what the evidence and the data says, and I'm going to be contrarian in ter- terms of, you know, telling you things you might not want to hear, telling you things that aren't very inspiring, but that was the data. So <laughs> that's the, data the says, inspiring part. Yeah. <laughs> the data people... says organizations are getting bigger. That means it's harder and harder for organizations to know who below them is qualified. So they rely more and more on these standardized credentials. That's continuing unless you replace it with another standardized credential. You can't win that one. So in house, right? Like Facebook, Amazon, Apple, uh, Microsoft. Those places really loved hot, top college degrees. Yeah, those but, places hire them like crazy. They, these those they aren't making top college degrees go away. That's some of the major demand for those degrees. I know, but wouldn't they? Wouldn't Apple go? Wait a minute. Why would we send them to Harvard when we can send them right here and get them to do exactly what we want? But how do right? we know who to send here? That Harvard is selecting. The oh, because they they they. they, they they, they could build a campus that's as big as Harvard and get rid of the shitty people, right? Like, I mean, right, I, I mean but to get the good people to come to their campus, they have to promise them this credential. That's what I've been talking about. People oh, go I to see. Harvard because I see. Right, they know that right. after the four years, they'll get this credential. They can uh, sell. That makes sense. You go to Apple and you and Apple likes you or Apple doesn't, but. And then you're done. Right. <laughs> that makes else, sense. You can't show it to anybody else. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense for sure. You know, one thing that's always going to be important, though, our show is sponsored by Stamps.com. Stop wasting time at the post office. Go to Stamps.com. It has become a lifesaver for me, honestly. Stamps.com allows you to mail and ship anytime, anywhere, right from your computer. You can send letters, ship packages, and pay a lot less with the discounted rates uh, from USPS, UPS, and more. See, 
Stamps.com has uh, saved businesses thousands of hours and tons of money, and that's why I use it myself. You know, I ship with Mary Supply. We ship with Bad Christian. We ship with Emory. Uh, Devin and I both uh, just use Stamps.com basically every day, and it has made things so easy. I love knowing that I can weigh my package figure everything out right there on the computer, and then I just can drop it in my mailbox. It's, it seriously is that simple. With Stamps.com, you get discounts of up to 40% off post office rates and 62% of UPS rates. So stop wasting time and uh, going to the post office and go to Stamps.com instead. There's no risk, and with uh, our promo code BADCHRISTIAN, you get a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus free postage and that digital scale makes it so easy to weigh your package know exactly how much you got to pay it's so awesome no long-term commitments or contracts so just go to stamps.com click the microphone at the top of the homepage, and type in bad christian that's stamps.com promo code bad christian stamps.com never go to the post office again so on all these type of things robin that you have you found I'm still trying to connect how you got from fundamental physics to all these icky issues. <laughs> well, I don't know if I've, so I'm not sure I per se looked for icky. I looked for true and I yeah. looked for important. Okay. And so I, you know, I went from physics to Silicon Valley and various kind of computer science things, AI mm-hmm. and hypertext publishing. And so I learned a lot of computer science and that was important then and still important now. And there was a lot of fundamental concepts I didn't appreciate that I understood much better after a few years of that. And then I started to see that you know, like some of the fundamental obstacles in our world are institutions. We often have good technical ideas in computer science and in physics, but our institutions block them and, and won't adopt them. And so I wanted to understand how to make our institutions better. And that seemed to be even more important. And so I worked, started a hobby of institution design and I had some ideas for institution reform. And then I eventually decided I should go back and get the credentials to make people listen. And that's when I looked around for grad school. And I started out at Caltech because they did experimental econ. And as an ex-physics person, I respected experiments. So physics people are trained not to think social science exists. We're, we're told that's bullshit. Those people don't know anything. They're just making it up. Mm-hmm. Real science is over here where you've got lab and equipment and things like that. And so when I saw, oh, they have lab experiments, I went, oh, well, you know, that's, that's real solid. You can do experiments and in institutions and figure out which ones work. And then we can, you know, make progress and then figure out the better ones. And so that's why I went to Caltech. And when I got there, I learned that, well, we don't allow experiments on things unless you have a theory. Mm-hmm. I, w- I was figuring you could just have an idea and you could test it and see if it works. <laughs> no, 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 no. We, we only allow you to test a theory, not an idea. And so you had, I needed to learn the math to make theories of institutions. And then in the process of learning standard math, I realized, you know, they know a lot. Their standard math models have a lot <laughs> of knowledge and insight embodied. And I, I came to appreciate that. And to contribute to it. And I still want to, and still do want to make better institutions, but moving down that line is where I learned about the social world in many ways. But along the way, I found puzzles. That is things that just didn't make sense Yeah, from the usual theory point of view. And, and that I kept seeing more and more of those. And that's where the icky stuff is, is where you realize, well, the reason why we're so puzzled by so many things is that we keep consistently giving people the benefit of the doubt and accepting their word for why they do things. And they tend to give positive, uplifting 
you know, good sounding reasons for why they do things. They go to school to learn the materials so they can be productive. They go to the med doctor so that they can get healthier. They participate in politics so they can make the community better off. And all of these reasons people give for doing things, they sound kind of good. And most social scientists, including economists, just accept those explanations at face value and just try to work them out in more detail. And we often just stumble because it just doesn't work. It doesn't make sense. And yeah. so that's what forced me to reconsider a lot of these assumptions and say, what if we are wrong a lot about why we do things? What if the real reasons we have for doing things are not as pretty and pleasant as we like to pretend? Could that explain a lot of these puzzles? And it turns out, yes. And that's the subject of my second book, The Elephant in the Brain, Hidden Motives in Everyday Life. Mm -hmm. But that's the way in which it's icky, i.e. it's unpleasant, in that you're realizing you're attributing people having relatively low motives, yeah. motives that they would rather hide, that they'd rather hush up because they're not pretty. Yeah. Well, that's why this is so, so fascinating and why it rubs up the way Toby is talking there and the way that this is, is you're, you're actually that, that piece about institutional design and you want to fix institutions and the way you move through science and saw that wasn't this or whatever. It's uh really rubs up against the kind of encounter we've had with Christianity and religion and then going into deconstructing that and trying to move through it. We started out with ambitions of trying to repair it or fix the institution and then wrestle with what does that mean? Like that's kind of our path to get here is a bunch of similar um, you know, I really understand the logic of how right. well couldn't it be better? Maybe we need to build new instead. Okay, and then every step you go. You find a new place, you go, all right. And right. It's so just I think the mess. motive to try to make it better di directs your attention and drives you to really uncover what's really going on. If you didn't have that sort of a motive, you would just sort of look a little thing here, a little thing there, and isn't that cute and isn't that interesting? And you're not really driven to go figure it out because you don't have a thing you're trying to do. So mm -hmm. I'm very much in favor of what I call chase your reading. <laughs> have a goal, a thing you're trying to find out, a problem you're trying to solve, and then you go read and learn in order to solve that problem. And even if in the end you can't solve that problem, <laughs> the things you learned, you, you integrate into a framework that was designed to try to do something. And that's right. far more useful to actually achieving most anything is to learn things and fit them into a framework where they could be useful if the conditions were right. Yeah, and that's the way I feel about our experiences. It's like, well, at first you want to figure out how to do church better and then work on the institution, then go, oh, we're st and now you're saying what I'm hearing you say now, too, that's frustrating in that same way about college is these institutions are bad and we are stuck with them. That's what it actually probably looks like, which is well, the frustrating we're relatively part. relatively stuck. So, so, I mean, I think you have to have a whole spectrum of saying, look, it can be harder but not impossible, <laughs> So I think that this is basically maturity. So, you know, often young people basically assume that everything's going to be really easy. They, they can win the Nobel Prize and be a Grammy winner and, uh, you know, final four basketball. And there's, there's all these great things they're going to do and it's not going to take much time and they're just going to do them. And then over time, you learn, no, it's a lot harder than you might have thought. And then some people decide it's impossible. <laughs> They say, oh, there's no point in trying to be an athlete or a singer or whatever, because that's just impossible. Nobody can do that. And that's wrong, too. The right answer is, yeah, it's a lot harder than you thought. Doesn't mean it's impossible. It means it's a long, hard road. And maybe you have to scale down your ambition of, of how big a thing you're going to do and how long it's going to take. But uh, once you realize, look, these things are really important and you're just one person out of seven billion people, <laughs> you know, if you make 
more than a one in seven billion impact on the world, you know, you're beating the odds. That's yeah. worth doing. Yeah. So yeah. go for it. Religion's a huge That's thing. That's inspiring okay? now. Now you're being inspiring. You know, you're, you're just two people. Religion's huge. So if you make a yeah. one in 10,000 impact on religion, you're, you're way batting above average, right? Yeah. yeah. And that's, that's what it takes for the world to improve slowly is for all of us to be trying to make all the improvements we can find. Yeah, it, it does feel overwhelming, though, like when like the, the idea of, of even we have tons of friends that are, you know, pastors or in, in the church system and they want to change it from the inside. And we I was in the in, on the inside. I worked at churches uh, and and we're, we'll move on from this topic here in a second. But just that. <laughs> Just the idea. I, I feel like I just had to move on from it. And that's the way I even feel like, I feel like I'm telling my kids, Hey, you might not go to college. And I don't know if, I don't know if that will be the way you should go. I don't know what that's going to look like. That'll be something you right. have, well, have, so have to I decide say, there. I simultaneously would say for your personal family choices, you should be pretty conservative and do the usual things usually. But for the purpose of like making the world better, you should explore some more radical alternatives. So uh, years ago, one of the things I did when I was first, you know, doing hypertext, I told you, I got involved with this small company called Xanadu and they were full of creative people who were basically too creative <laughs> they, they, you know, on, on every dimension of their project, they had to be creative. They had to be creative about where, how their offices were arranged and how they did their whiteboards and how they did their computer screens and how they hired uh, office assistants and where they were located. They, and you just realize if you, if you just try to be different on 30 different variables, <laughs> Right. You know, five of them are going to kill you and it's just not going to work. So a successful startup is going to pick one or a small bundle of related variables and try to take a big risk on those. But to have the best chance of that, you have to be conservative on a whole bunch of others. Mm -hmm. And so the best way to be radical is to be mostly conservative and then pick very carefully the, the thing you're going to be radical on and give it its best shot. Right. So if you were going to make a different church, you know, you shouldn't necessarily change everything about how churches go. You should right. figure out what's the one thing you want to change and then try to make a church where that piece is different and like see just, if you can like make a just, goal of it. Like just swap out Jesus for like Elon Musk. For, for example, <laughs> I, I don't know that that'll work, but I don't hey, I been thinking about it's the radical. of reforming religions. Just focus on that one. Right. I, mean, I have thought of it in the past because I've, I've been religious and I've talked to people like, but how could you design a better religion? And it definitely is harder than it seems because an awful lot of what works in religion isn't the explicit formal parts. It's the, in, you know, the, the rituals, the practice, the community. Yeah. That's a lot of the things that actually make it attractive and make it work. And you, first you have to even see those things. If you look at dogma, <laughs> sort of things like that, you're not even seeing that stuff. So people who try to design a new religion by trying to design a new dogma, <laughs> you know, they're just missing the main thing. But that's true of everything that's probably really hard to design. The mistake fundamentally is thinking you can design something that evolves then. I think the mistake is designing a thing that you don't understand yeah. very well. So, I mean, I think almost everything is open to potential redesign, but you need to be honest with yourself about how much of it you understand and mm -hmm. how much you don't. Uh, because if, if you're just misunderstanding it, then you're, you're going to be much more hopeless, right? I mean, you could just still randomly come up with something better and eventually there will be better things. And maybe most of them will happen because random people who didn't understand things just tried stuff, <laughs> but hopefully you can do better if you understand a, a bit better, but that means you have to be honest about what you do and don't understand. That's, I think, again, one of the key things I learned about institution design is that initially 
I didn't understand a bunch of key things about institutions. I was focused on the visible things that we all talk about that stand out. And often those are just not the most important parts. And now that I'm older and wiser, I can see the pieces that matter more that people are hiding and not really calling attention to. And so I think I'm better at designing things now, but I know also now just how hard it is. Yeah. So I need to pick a small number of things and work on designing those things and, uh, you know, and, and realize that basically I need trial. So you know, anywhere where something's complicated, your best initial design is still not going to be good enough. So what you need is an environment where you can do trial and error, where you can vary it, see what happens, try it again, see what happens. And that's what a lot of our social institution academics lack. So mm-hmm. academics do a lot of wise, like commenting on and studying existing institutions. And we have mathematical models, and laboratory models, and all simple models of alternatives. And we write lots of papers in that mode, but we get to the point where somebody ought to try something in the real world that's a bit more complicated than our models or lab can handle. And then nobody does it because you can't get an academic paper out of that. And so there's just a lot of good ideas that are just stuck at that point where no real organization actually is willing to try them because they're not paid for it. And, you know, that they're focused on some obviously immediate issues and they're not into like innovating institutions for everybody else. And so that's actually the limitation, I'd say. If, if you could get some organizations more willing to just try some stuff, then we could just learn a lot more about what works. So you still, I find it amazing that after thinking on all those levels of, of a trend of maybe more idealistic to practical, would you say that at least that's accurate as a trend? As you become more aware of the things you don't know and stuff, you become more practical? So I, I would think this difference between idealism and practical could be thought of as difference between abstract and concrete. Okay. Yeah. And w- one of the key things you learn intellectually with life is how to move well between abstract and concrete. So completely abstract and completely concrete, neither one of these work very well. Mm-hmm. But if you're going to pick one, probably completely concrete works better. Because <laughs> completely <laughs> yeah. abstract really goes wrong really fast. Yeah. <laughs> so well, what you need to do is do some concrete things, abstract from it, have a abstract hypothesis, think about what concrete things that applies, go check those, maybe try them out, get some new data now, try to abstract again, uh, maybe connect it to some other abstractions to produce a new abstraction, but now move back down and get concrete again. That's actually the magic of thinking well, is to, to do the right, it's, it's like surfing, really, <laughs> right? It, surfing is a walk, feeling the water, up and down and going with it at the right time, up or down, depending on what you're trying to do. And you need to learn to surf. (laughs) I can't give you a simple rule how to surf. You have to feel it and try it out. And that's what I would say. Simple abstraction or simple concrete, neither works very well. You you need to learn to go back and forth. Well, I'm saying still, overall in your life, your trends, you've been able to become more concrete in a lot of areas kind of a thing. And you haven't lost Because I've acquired a lot of abstractions as well. (laughs) Yeah. A lot of the powerful abstractions I've collected are what enable me to be more confident and effective in many concrete things. But your your personal motivation to do good and achieve those things hasn't been crushed is what I'm saying. That's what I notice about it. Yes, And so you wrestle with these institutions all the way through redesign to where you wind up to what I think is the worst place in the world is thinking about like policy level stuff. That is so like I, I don't like the thought of, well, one day will I be trying to affect policy at that level or something like that's So not what I would want. I I I like the, you know, uh, other kind of stuff. Policy is just a word for choices. 
But policy happens at all levels. You have a policies in your life. Your company has a policy of what it does. Your, your city has policies. There's just policies everywhere. So you can't be really influencing people and what they do unless you're influencing policies, but they don't have to be formally declared mission statements or anything. They can mm -hmm. just be the habits of what people are doing and, and you're trying to show them a new habit. Well, I'm still interested in the fact that you're motivated to get in and try to make positive changes that are beyond what you can, you know, not win the game, so to speak. So that spirit of that, that you take right. all the way into the level. So you even work on your stuff now that seems to be your work is a lot of stuff where, and you say this, I think in the elephant in the brain or somewhere else that you, what you had to do is pretend to give people what they pretend to want. So ultimately you wind up playing right. this game where that's well, the funniest I'm, thing. I still think it's important, but I still, re but I now realize it's much harder than I thought. And I am somewhat discouraged in the sense that I've come to realize even more that if I have an idea for a better institution and I can show that it's better to somebody who is willing to think carefully and look at the details, i.e. in terms of experiments and data sets and, and a theory, that's nowhere near enough in a world where like politics and public opinion drives choices. So I know of a great many ways that our society on a large scale could be much more efficient, but I don't know how to make anybody care. And what I've realized is even the simplest, cleanest arguments for how something could be better, if it just pushes the wrong button on the surface, then it, that's the end of it. People aren't willing to listen to more. And so in order to have innovation, it has to not go through those channels of public opinion. We need a world where people can do things even if public opinion's against it. And unfortunately, we're just getting more and more regulated and more and more risk averse and less willing to let small groups of people do things that other people think are icky or won't work, et cetera. And that's, that's a fundamental problem where we're getting less innovation. It's especially a problem for social innovation because you know, social innovation tends to push more people's buttons and it tends to affect more people. And so the more people who have veto powers to say, no, you can't try that there. I don't like that. Yeah. So for example, we talked, I guess, probably in our last thing about challenge trials and pandemic. Why not let some people you know, infect mm -hmm. themselves in, in various ways and see what happens and what things might work better, say with low dose infections. And then other people say, no, that's just icky. <laughs> We're not going to let you try that. And, you know, then we have an entire world of 7 billion people where no one in the world ever tried those things <laughs> because yeah. everywhere, all the regulators have the same sort of feeling about that sicky and they talk to each other and they feel all the more strengthened by knowing everybody else in the world agrees right. with them. And so we get less and less able to try new things. So if you think about a century ago in the United States in 1900 to 1930, the United States was just trying a lot of stuff that the rest of the world thought was kind of crazy. And that even a lot of people in the United States was kind of crazy, like automobiles. Most people, when they were thinking about the future of transportation in, say, 1880 or something, they were thinking of trains and big things that everybody shared because that's what they had been using. And the whole idea that individuals would have their own little mobile thing was not even thought of. And if they had thought of it, they think, well, won't they crash into each other? Won't ordinary people driving these things going 60 miles an hour? Can't right. they just destroy things all the time? And they, it was true. They did do that. But the same as now with AI, AI cars. That. Yeah. Same same as now with AI cars. Everybody's going, oh, you'll die. If you let the, the computer drive the car, you'll die. It's very similar and to right so now. So it's very risk averse. It's very saying, right. you know, you got to prove to us that all sorts of things. So that's discouraging me. And in some sense, that's moving me away from institution design to things about what's actually going on in the world. Because if I study what the world is, I don't have as many people getting in my way as if I try to say what the world could be. 
because to, to show you what the world could be, I have to get somebody to try it different. Right. Mm-hmm. It's and funny though. It, it's funny though, because though, I, like uh, we, we were just talking about religion or whatever. And you're sw- like, I, I feel like our culture now is very religious. It feels, it feels it, oh, sure. the, sure. the way that we have, we have uh, moved from whatever, you know, God you believe in to now, this thing is what is the ultimate oh, power or I mean, whatever it might be. Obviously, ideologies right? have replaced formal religions in a great many ways over right. the last half centuries in our society. And they're continuing, and it looks like the trend will be up. I mean, this that trend doesn't look like it's going away. It's another trend I wish weren't there, perhaps. But uh, so, I mean, so basically, we have a lot of data on religion and historical traditional religions for most people do pretty well. That is, people who are more religious just consistently win in all these social ways we measure. And so I got to say, even if I personally don't believe most religious dogma, religions look like they help people. But it's much less clear to me that ideological fervor of the way we substitute for it now, that really helps people in the same way religions did. Because I'm not sure people are getting the same sort of rituals and communities and, you know, sort of emotional support out of ideology yeah. that they got out of religion. So you'd be better but, off to just pick rabbinic, rabbinic Judaism versus the, uh, a, you know, activist flavor of the week calls to ideology or whatever it is. This doesn't have all the stuff that's really going to benefit you, maybe. Although you can't pick by yourself. I mean, that's yeah. one of the natures of these things is they're, they're communal shared things that you, you have to be part of a community that's all picked it together. And so if other people aren't picking them, it makes it a lot hard for you to pick them unless you're willing to like pick up and move to wherever the other people are who share something. Um, you're mostly going to go along with your world. But do you think you are an individual with like, for example, your Twitter, it is abrasive. Like, like I, I enjoy it, but I mean, you will, you will, I feel like you're an individual on Twitter saying things like, do you, do you consider yourself being brave and going going against the grain because i mean the things that you say sometimes people I, i'm sure you get a lot of shit i mean i bet you get well, dms and all kinds of stuff that are like so it's, what it's are you like saying you're a bad about, guy it's like what, when people are 20 they tend to pick their favorite music genre and their favorite kind of restaurant food and they just pick a whole bunch and their favorite heroes and what they're going to be and then they tend to stick with those for the rest of their life so people of the same age all through their life they still like the same bands and they still like the same foods Right. And so I think, you know, when I was 20, the world was pretty tolerant of a lot of kind of talking and people would write and talk on a pretty wide range of topics. And I just assumed in some sense that that was a natural world. And I developed my habits of talking and thinking in that world. And later on, I come to realize, you know, the world I grew up in was pretty rare historically. Right. <laughs> if you look at most places and times this historically there, they have pretty strong censorship and they have pretty strong things you're supposed to say and not supposed to say. And my finding a world where you can sort of question everything and think about everything was very invigorating for me. And it felt freeing and and quite possible, but I should have known, I guess, that that might not last. And so now that it seems to be lasting less, you know, I'm older, I can, I can withstand it. So (laughs) somebody ought to still like keep up the old style to show everybody that it's possible. So are you you concerned, are are you concerned about the censorship? Do you think that it's only going to grow like that? People ideas are getting less. I I think definitely it's, it's, it's grown quite rapidly over the last decade and looks hasn't peaked. So yeah, it's going to grow. 
So, yeah. I mean, but now that one, though, happens to line up with what a bunch of people do want to think. So that one is slightly different because, like, Toby and I want college to go away or something dramatically because that just feels good to us to say. But uh, there's a lot of people who really do say that the, you know, freedom of speech being taken away and censorship. So that actually aligns you with the large demographic of people that want that particular message. Well, see, the problem has been people have always like given lip service to things like freedom of speech, just like they give lip service to creativity in school. But in fact, they don't really support it. So, like for example, in schools, almost everybody says creativity is good and schools ought to be promoting creativity. And all the literature says schools squash creativity. They consistently squash creativity in kids. And maybe that's one of their functions. But people still go along with the creativity is good and schools should be promoting creativity. They just have a disconnect between what they actually do and the, and the, you know, the ideal things they spout. So that's also true with free speech. People consistently say free speech is a good thing. But then as soon as something is being said they don't like and they feel like they're part of a majority and the thing being said as a minority, they tend to feel free to use whatever levers they have to make them stop. So we may have already experienced that really beautiful window of free speech that was really kind of uh, an outlier time that we've already seen in the past. Is that true? Is that it was an outlier in our lifetime? There's an outlier of free speech and it's gone. Well, if you think on the largest timescales, up until a few hundred years ago, almost all intellectuals around the world in almost all societies had this norm of speaking indirectly so that the public and authorities couldn't understand them. <laughs> they, under, they had this like idea that if they talked directly about what they were saying in a way that ordinary people could understand, that they would be quickly killed. <laughs> they would violate <laughs> religious and political oh, and other sorts of uh, you know norms, and, and right. they wouldn't last very long. So almost all intellectuals all through history had this norm of saying, well, let's talk among ourselves <laughs> and try to use evasive words and and language such that we can make it not clear what we're saying enough so that we can get away with that. And it's only in the last few hundred years that many intellectuals have decided to speak directly and clearly in a way that a wide audience can understand and think they can get away with that. And they have, to a substantial degree, gotten away with it compared to ancient societies. But will that last? And of course, even in the United States, we've gotten away with a lot more than most of the rest of the world has gotten away with in terms of being able to Right. Say things that intersect with religious or political or other sorts of uh, sexual or other sorts of sensitive topics. Uh, so, you know, there's once you see that you are in an unusual era, you can hope to make it go on. But you have to realize there's a substantial chance that regression you know, to the regression mean. To the mean. Exactly. Yeah. Well, let me see if we can take that darkness spot of that and then use it as a hinge to move into the to the future and the long term future. Um, it, it's it's as if you are concerned and see how this ties in. But it's as if you're concerned about the day to day, our world, our institutions, but also you think tend to think in really really long time scales and seem to have this, which I find just inspiring belief that it really matters and you could care about things happen in the very, very long term. So you've done a lot of thinking, obviously, probably for your whole life on outer space and those type of things. Um, and then uh, the great filter is your idea. Um, and as it fits with the Fermi paradox and where aliens are and all that stuff. And so you have a post on your site that's on overcoming bias called What's at Stake? And I'm not a great reader, but I'm going to read the uh, 
introductory paragraph of this. I find it really fascinating and moving, especially to our audience and the worldview shift here. So <clears throat> this is Robin, I guess, talking about what it is that humans do and their importance in the grand scheme, basically. But he says, in the traditional Christian worldview, God sets the overall path of human history, a history confined to one planet for a few thousand years. Now, individuals can choose on the side of good or evil, maybe make a modest difference to local human experience, but they can't change the largest story. This is firmly in God's hands. Yet, an ability to personally choose good or evil or to make a difference to mere thousands of associates seemed to be plenty enough to mo- to motivate most Christians to action. So, in that alone, the fact that you can make that little difference overall, even though God's in control, and you can only make a small impact to a small number of people and what already seems like a big time scale to them, um, that in itself is enough to motivate wars and all this action that almost everybody's always ever done. And, and we felt like everything mattered for that reason enough to really be motivated. And then um, you say in the standard of, of in the standard narrative of elites today, the entire future value of the universe sits in our collective hands. If we make poor choices today, uh, such as about global warming or AI, we may soon kill ourselves and prevent future civilization, forever destroying all sources of value. Or we might set our descendants down a permanently perverse path, or even if, so that even if they never go extinct, they also never realize most of the universe's great potential. So, and yet there's like an apathy or a stagnation of our, of what we're going to do and how, and what, how big the stakes are. So what, how did you, can you get us a, can you re-summarize that for me? I wanted to read that, but what compelled you to, where is the, how does this fit in with your, your grand view? So I've always opportunistically looked for what seemed important. Mm-hmm. And, you know, in my period after I finished graduate school and before I got my tenure track job, I was, you know, allowing myself to look at a range of topics. And one of those topics was sort of the large scale time, space time history of the universe, uh, where we came from and what's out there and those sorts of things. And those always seems obviously important. But they also seem to most people very hard and very hard to make progress on. So most people don't touch them. And then I, like I said, I bang my head against hard things. And so at that time, I banged my heart against head against that hard thing. And I made substantial progress, actually. And I showed that at least there were a bunch of important neglected things that you could make progress on if you would just try. Uh, but because those weren't economics, the, my economics professional associates said, if you want to get tenure in economics, you need to drop that stuff. (laughs) And you need to focus on standard economics publications, which I did. And that's in some sense why I dropped this potential of exploring this grand structure of the future of the universe and and the history, because I couldn't get paid for it. And I, I wanted to get this tenured position. So recently I've come back to this topic because I can, and because I've realized there's still a lot of ways I could actually make progress. <laughs> there are, again, things that people tend to think you couldn't make progress on, but you can. So because I come back to that, I've, I've come to think about this topic and make concrete progress. But the thing that connects to the paragraphs you just read is 
almost everybody wants and deeply wants a cosmology. We want a story of the entire universe and where we and our associates fit in that universe, the entire history of the universe, the entire space of it. And we especially want a cosmology that has meaning and motives and agents in it. Mm -hmm. So the usual physics cosmologist has this dead, empty universe up until we show up temporarily and throw a few parties. And then typically they describe the dead, empty universe going on for more trillions of years. And that's a cosmology, but it's not very motivating and it's hard to relate to because it doesn't have creatures like us in it. So then I've been associated with futurists over the last few decades and futurists try to put into that cosmology the, well, the future the physicists are describing is what would happen if none of us ever did anything. But what will really happen is that our descendants will go out there and change everything and we will take over the universe and fill it with whatever we choose to fill it with. And that's part of the story that uh, you know, a recent way humans think of themselves now is to think we control the whole future universe and we will decide what happens. And therefore, everything that happens is at stake. If we screw up now, we will screw all of that up. But at least it's a motivating cosmology that tells you how you matter with respect to value and agents. But it doesn't say in much very specifically about what will happen when or what the issues will be. It just says we will fill the universe, hopefully, and, and things <laughs> will happen and they will matter. And so it's, it's a more motivating cosmology, but it's still pretty vague and empty in the sense of not giving you specific things. So what I realized then recently in the last few months is once I went back and thought about these fundamental questions about what actually is happening in the universe and what will actually happen in the universe, that offers a new cosmology, a new framing of who's where and doing what and why they matter, that not only seems true, it seems more emotionally relevant. It's the kind of cosmology you might want to learn about and even teach your children and even orient your current behavior with respect to, because it's a cosmology of things that matter and agents that you can relate to and choices that are big and important that are more specific and concrete than merely humans will fill the universe and do something fantastic. Who knows what? Well, let me see if I can represent the three views then there. I'm a, and Toby, I'll use you to represent view number one, which okay. is anything in that long future stuff, that don't matter. Yeah. that th That's the typical, that's the ob the obvious view is that we, do we really need to think about how many generations do you actually care about, Toby? Right. You know, two or three? Yeah, right. Like, my great, my great grandparents did not think about sure. me whatsoever. Well, right. And that's been a fine human cosmology for almost all humans who ever lived until recently. So you think of the Christian cosmology as a much larger one compared to that. Yeah. Almost everybody lived in a small village or a small group of a few tens of people, and they knew of the last few generations and what, what was over the next hill. And that was a cosmology for them, and it was meaningful and it mattered. But then Christianity said, well, no, you should care about eternity because you'll live in heaven or hell there. It was and able to should... give a bigger story. <laughs> right. It yeah. was a bigger story. And and to motivate more, though, like and more. Yeah. Pro and then then things happen, though, because. Right. Of that. But and it was your village and the people coming over the hill to kill yeah. you were integrated into that larger cosmology. And that made the current the local battle more meaningful because it was put into this larger frame. Mm -hmm. And so. You know, Christianity relative to that small cosmology was a grander, larger cosmology. Absolutely, which part of it, part of its attraction. So then, people like me, you know, come along and feel like, okay, so what's bigger than that? And then I can think and enjoy thinking on the thing of, oh, I can think far into the future, and yeah, 
we can go to populate the planets or whatever. So then that starts to be a motivating story to me that I can, I can make I can make sense to me. That can motivate my future behavior. I can see that. And that's on top of or graduated from that smaller view that I, I did have. Um, but even then, um, and I laugh about thinking very far into the future like that. It almost seems like a joke to me. But it still somehow works to to motivate my actions. But I still laugh about it. Like, well, right. I don't really care. I don't really know. It doesn't really well, matter. So, in an ancient society, you could well look farther into the future and think you could because things were so stable. And now we've had such rapid change over the last few centuries that one of the major sort of cosmologies people have is just the future as this intrinsically opaque thing that couldn't possibly be seen because the most fundamental feature of their world is radical change. And so, a lot of people. I know as futurists really enjoy that as a base, sort of a fundamental religion or eth- ethic, uh-huh. which is, you know, you couldn't possibly know the future. There's no way to possibly know the future. Fundamentally, future is unknowable because of fundamental change. And I think that goes too far. I mean, I think it definitely captures important ways in which the world has changed a lot over the last few centuries. But I think we do understand some basic things about physics and social science and the universe that we can use to describe and understand the future. And that's what I did in my first book, The Age of M, where I tried to lay out a particular future based on a particular technology of brain emulations and tried to say, look, of all the things we know, we could tell you what that world looks like. It's a radically different world from ours, but it's not unknowable. You can describe it in great detail. So we have three. So so the third. So the one position is that there's a we don't care a small world, whatever. And then we get bigger than that. We say, we're going to populate the cosmos and then we'll take over. We, and the stakes there are, we take over everything. So everything we do matters the most and we'll dominate the cosmos. But you say in this article, we're likely to run into other civilizations out there if we are, when and how, and then it's either we, we, we right, so might get to, to contribute. Tell you about aliens, right? So yeah, so now I'm, aliens I'm, coming. So play. I'm claiming that the war, the future of the universe is not radically uncertain, uh-huh. and that in fact there are aliens, and that I can tell you a lot about them. And the first reaction most people have is, by definition, we know nothing about aliens. That is their concept of the topic of aliens. It's it's fundamentally a topic on which we have no concrete data, and therefore it's only speculation. It's all about what we think is plausible. And that's the assumption I most want to deny is to say, look, we know a few things about the universe and they're enough to actually give you a distribution over where and when the aliens are and what they're doing, Mm -hmm. the the big ones that matter. And that's what I'm about to tell you, I guess, is we're going to discuss is what do we know? What can we know about aliens in the universe? So the, the first thing to say is think of two kinds of aliens. Well, first of all, you know, I don't know that everybody's at the place of there are aliens, though. I mean, I think we have to take people. That's where I have to get you. I have to get you there. Okay. (laughs) Okay. So, but hypothesize two kinds of aliens, at least quiet and loud. So Mm -hmm. the quiet aliens are the more the ones of the standard Drake equation sort of thing. They pop up for a little while. They they expand into a, a little bit of region near them, and then they die soon and go away. And on the cosmic scale, they didn't do that much. So most like SETI work, Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence, is looking for quiet aliens. It's looking for ones that might last for a little while. At the same time, we could see them and then send a message or make a signature somehow that we would notice. And then we could feel not quite so alone and knowing out there there was some aliens, but they're small and quiet and they don't make a lasting impact on the universe. (laughs) Loud aliens are the opposite. So they're the kind of aliens that if they're there at all, they're going to be hard to miss. 
So a loud alien basically starts somewhere and then they grow and then they grow faster and faster and bigger and bigger. And in a relatively short time, say less than 10 million years, they are expanding really fast, as fast as they can. And then they just keep expanding that fast until they meet some other alien also expanding that fast. And then once all these aliens have met each other, the universe is full of them. And the entire universe is full of these aliens. And the key assumption here is that the volumes they control, they do something with such that it would look different. We don't know how exactly different, but they just, they, they change things. They don't just fly past and, and leave a mark a note or something. They reorganize. They, they, just like we do when we colonize some, you know, area and humans go do stuff with it. We change it. We change it in visible ways because we want to use it for stuff. So loud aliens would do that. They would appear somewhere within a cosmologically short time, grow fast, and then they would just fill the entire universe with themselves, and then that would look really different. So this theory of allowed aliens has a bunch of predictions that we can compare to data, and I can use those things to tell you what we actually know about the alien. I can tell you why we know they exist or have a strong reason to believe they exist and where they are and why. So you might say, how could you know that they're out there? Uh, and so... The, key I, the, the first key data point is that we are early. Humans are early. So you might not think 13.8 billion years is early, but it is. So the universe started 13.8 billion years ago with the Big Bang. It's been you know, expanding and growing since then. Here we are at 13.8 billion years, but it will keep going for trillions and trillions of years. We know roughly when stars are formed in the history of the universe. There was a burst and then they die away. And we know the distribution of the masses of stars. And we know for each star how long it lasts. And we know that each of them tends to have some planets. And so we can actually calculate the distribution over time in when advanced life like us should show up. And relative to that distribution, we are way early. Most of it should show up later under the assumption that when it shows up, the universe is waiting for it. That's the key assumption. So under the assumption that at any time advanced shows up, it will show up in an empty universe that's been waiting around for it to show up, and then it can do stuff. Under that assumption, we are crazy early. And the so, explanation, go ahead. Given the whole time scale of the universe that it will last, we're very early in. So we are at, that puts us as the first intelligent life that's out this far or among the first in this vicinity. That well, the first nearby, but nearby. the question of are we the first or not? So the, the key thing is, this grab this alien this model of loud aliens that our particular version we've called grabby aliens because they go out and grab stuff. Um, this we have a simple model of grabby aliens which has three free parameters, and we can fit each of these parameters to data we have to get the actual distribution of them. And one of the key parameters is when they start showing up in the history of the universe. And the key idea is they set a deadline. The grabby aliens will after a certain period, just fill up everything. And after that, they, no, no new ones can show up. All the space has been taken. So we are probably at a representative origin date. That is, we could become grabby in the future. We might not, but we might. And that makes our date a random sample from the dates at which they show up. And that sets one of the free parameters in this model, which is sort of the average rate at which they show up. And so we don't know where in the ranking order. We, we might be right in the middle. We might be early. We might be late. Uh, relative to all the other ones, we don't know where in that distribution we are, but uh, we can integrate over that possibilities and get a distribution over where they are. 
but that's one of the three parameters. There's only two more parameters. Another parameter is how fast they expand. And we can set that from the fact that if they expanded slowly, we should see lots of them out there. At an average date at which they appear, the, half the universe is basically filled up with them. And so if they were expanding slowly, you could look out and the sky would be full of them. And if the sky is not full of them, that means, well, they can't be expanding slowly. So basically, if they expand really fast, you don't really see them until almost they get here. And there's a selection effect that says you don't expect to see them, uh, very many of them, because they all expanding so fast. And so that says they probably are expanding really fast. And that sets the second parameter. And there's only one more parameter. And that's a power law, power from the origin of life to advanced life, our, our theory of that. So that takes a little more to explain, but um, in the history of life on earth, life has gone through a whole bunch of different stages in becoming more advanced. And we have a simple statistical model of how that would happen. It says that it's like we were trying to like uh, solve a bunch of locks by a deadline. So say we're on one of these TV shows, 24 or whatever, where <laughs> there's a bomb going to go off and we have to defuse it. And so there's a whole bunch of things we have to randomly try in order. And, and if we get lucky, we'll get them all done by a deadline and then boom, the bomb won't go off, right? And so if you happen to be lucky and do a bunch of hard things unusually fast, then that's called this hard steps model. It's actually the model of cancer. So in, in your body, <laughs> Each of your cells has a number of steps that has to go through to become a cancerous cell, roughly six or seven. And uh, each of your cells, most of those, almost all your cells never go through all six steps by the time you die, because each step is really hard. But you've got so many cells in your body, by the time you die, actually 40% of us do have cancer somewhere in our body, because one of those cells went through all six of those steps mm -hmm. uh, before you die. And so that's what planets are like. They're in this universe of each planet has to go through a bunch of hard steps, which are very difficult. Very few planets get through all the steps by, before the end of the planet goes away. But on Earth, we got lucky. We got through a whole bunch of steps and here we are and the planet isn't over yet. And that's the idea is that's really rare. But that simple statistical model predicts that the, the chance of us showing up at any moment in time goes as a power law of time. And the power is the number of those steps. And because we can look at the history of life on Earth to guess that the number of steps is, say, roughly 3 to 12, maybe a middle estimate of 6. And so that's the thing that says in the universe, the chance of these things popping up goes as this power law, maybe T to the 6, which means early on almost nothing happens. And then later on, they start to pop, 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 pop. And then, you know, they, they're popping really fast, except there's almost no place they can pop because the previous ones have filled up the universe. Mm -hmm. So the last civilizations show up just in the crevices before where the previous ones are about to meet because that's where the power law is strongest and they're popping all over the place. So that's our model of gravity aliens. It's a stochastic model that says we don't know exactly where they are, but they will show up according to this power law. They will expand at this rate. And there's a certain, you know, density of them. And we can estimate all three of these parameters from our data. And so I can tell you basically where, how, so I can tell you basically we will meet these aliens in a few hundred million years. <laughs> okay. And they, that means they are like a few hundred million light years away. Oh, God. Okay. So they're that rare. Each one typically encompasses by the time it reaches the other one, 10 million galaxies. <laughs> they're that rare. One per 10 million galaxies. Okay. So, That's okay. what we're talking about. Okay. Let, let me say so, a couple things there. So, you're saying, based on all that, if you can follow it, um, 
rewind it or check out a couple of what you're saying. I think I am tracking with it mostly. Um, there, statistically, the way you have the Drake equation filled out, this is is that part of it? Like you have your own values for the Drake equation? Well, it's it's a separate calculation. For the okay, Drake so we're equation, not even right? doing that. But just right. if I follow the math and the, the parameters to get there, you're saying that there would be a grabby alien civilization allowed alien civilization every 10 million galaxies, one in 10 million galaxies? Roughly on average, yeah. Okay. And, okay. And so when they appear, then they expand for 100 million years until they hit another one. Mm -hmm. And then after that, the universe is full. Yeah, right right at the same time. we're right at the time when they're appearing. We're at a typical date when they're appearing. So they're far away from here and we can't see them, but that's the future we can expect that eventually, if we're lucky... We could be one of these grabby alien civilizations who eventually meets other ones. And then there'd be a future after that when they interact with each other and interesting things happen. So right there, there's a cosmology, which I can be somewhat confident of. I can say it's not all speculation and who knows what. They're really out there. They're about this far apart. This is what they're doing. And this is when we meet them, you know, statistically. And that orients you to this is a potential future of ours we, we could be the the quiet aliens who just pop up for a short time and then die and then our residue will be eventually swept over by a grabby alien or maybe we could be lucky enough to last and become one of these grabby aliens so I, i'm lost on how this is skipping the step of just the great filter of how hard it is for life to emerge and stuff like that, though. Why, well, why is that tripping me up? One every 10 million galaxies is pretty hard. Mm-hmm. It's still a very hard filter. Yeah. So this is completely consistent with the great filter being hard because this says that's very hard. That is in 10 million galaxies. If each galaxy has a billion stars, then you have 10 million billion stars and you say only one of those achieves the status in you know 14 billion years yeah that's saying it's very very rare so that's completely supporting the idea that it's very very rare for any one planet to go through all these steps and reach the end that's the great filter the difficulty of doing all those things given that we're a data point and we believe that it is possible I mean, you could take the christian view that it's not possible because it's only you know, God breathing life into Genesis or whatever. You could take that view, but if you don't take that view and we say it is possible, even if we don't understand the steps to get here, um, the, the math, even if you want to be very conservative, seems to check out on on that way. And is, uh, do you have any, but there, still, what would the figures, I, I guess I'm still looking at it from the way of the great filter and with the question where we're sitting at, if I just put it back into my point of view, do where do you think we're at in the great filter? Is the hardest steps right. ahead of us or behind us is what right. I'm so, asking. So that's a question we've, we've recently done an analysis of. So the key idea is there are civilizations that reach our level and then there is the gravity level and the gravity level becomes visible and fills the universe And the great filter is that it's very hard to become grabby. It's also probably very hard to get to where we are, but how hard is it to get from here to becoming grabby? Right. That's the question. So it's hard to tell. So what I'm more sure of is it won't take as long as the other steps took in history because it's probably not just one of these things where we have to just try, try things for billions of years. It'll probably be we kill ourselves or we go down a wrong political path or just different things will go wrong. And then we will just lose the potential. Can I freeze you right there for the whole context of the conversation? 
Is that a, a central anxiety of yours? Is that is where we are? We are well, at a, the place where, I mean, we really might just. That's this cosmo- yes, that's this element of the cosmology is to say in the universe, there are two kinds of aliens. There are the ones who fill the universe and determine the future after that. And there are the ones who pop up and die away and hardly matter. Which yeah. do we want to be? Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that's our cosmology. Now, you could say I'd rather be one of the ones that pop up and die away because they don't violate ecology by you know trying to colonize the universe they you know the, the small quiet ones respect and, and understand that they're a limited creature and should be limited and that's a value point of view but still the cosmology says there are these two kinds at the moment we're only the small kind we could maybe if we work hard become the big kind if we want to and that's a fundamental element of our choice in the universe and our position in the universe where how we relate to the universe we are at the moment one of these very rare small ones we might become one of the even more rare big ones. What do we want to do about that? <laughs> yeah. Well, I was going to say, uh, well, right now, uh, colonizer is a pretty strong term in our culture. And I'm negative, wondering, sure. uh, <laughs> negative, right? yeah. well, 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 I'm wondering, what does that mean about alien civilizations? Because the more freedom maybe yeah. you have, the... <laughs> The right? less potential you have to take to, to be a grabby right. alien, right? So, so at, at this point, I'm going to go there with UFOs. <laughs> so, you know, UFOs are something people talk about in the context of aliens. And yep. they're kind of a, you know, there's a lot of weird sightings and there's a lot of them. And a lot of them seem to be pretty solid. So let's talk about what if UFOs really are aliens, or at least some of them, right? What what if? And how does that fit into this whole story? So one, one, one I think key thing we see about UFOs is if it's aliens, they are not the grabby kind. <laughs> mm-hmm. They are not filling the universe and making a big impact. They're, they're small and they're, even though they're more advanced than us, they're not crazy advanced. They, they haven't, you know, taken apart Jupiter and done huge things like that. And even what they're doing seems kind of dysfunctional. Like, are they trying to hide? Are they trying to get noticed? Either way, right. they're not doing a good job. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe one of the best theories of what they're doing is just poking us just to see how we react to keep track of us. But that's a really crude way to keep track of us is just to keep poking us with random s- right. sightings or something. Right. So and, it basically and suggests, <laughs> <laughs> right. But it basically suggests that they're not these super competent expanding civilization. They are some sort of deformed incompetent <laughs> distorted version right. and you try and they go ask well how could that appear I mean, how would that be so um you're right i, I keep thinking about it when, <laughs> when, he, when anybody says they see an alien it's almost like a guy in his like 69 camaro you know just, like you know doing something crazy well, not not super think, like, how is this an advanced civilization right on some sort of purpose how does this make any sense right 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 okay so I think one of the big risks we face in the next thousand years is that organizational scale has been increasing consistently over the last few hundred, as, as we talked about before. And a very natural endpoint for increasing organizational scales is world government or solar system wide government. Yeah. That seems to me actually pretty inevitable within a few centuries. I don't see how to, unless we really try to stop that, that seems like a natural endpoint. And it'll be very attractive because it will prevent war. It'll allow right. us to deal with things like global warming. It'll, it'll seem to have a lot of big advantages. But one of the things we, we think we know is that when you know big organizations or governments or say government monopolies have just been very secure for a long time without much external competition or threat, 
they get lazy and they get kind of randomly inefficient. They have sort of all sorts of odd agencies and subgroups that do crazy conflicting things and they just become inefficient and uninnovative. And I worry that a world government naturally does that to a whole civilization. And the one out would be if it allowed escapees to go start colonies elsewhere and do things differently. And I fear that a world government may just not want to allow that. It might be out of a moral thing by saying colonization is raping the universe and we can't allow that. Yeah. Or it might yeah. be just jealousy. If you're ruling the world and they go out there, they will make a separate rule, world that you will no longer be able to rule. And you might not want that threat. So you might just close the borders. We know that a lot of civilizations in history closed the borders. They did not let people leave. They didn't want contact with outsiders because the rulers there wanted to be in charge of the local world and didn't want outside threats. So that's a worrisome future scenario. Like any any sufficiently powerful normal power structure would want to not would, would have incentive to not you know cut out threats, cut out competitors. You know, yeah, and lock so lock things down, prevent change. And there's public I mean there's public support for that idea too like the right. idea so, that we're colonizers or we could do bad or we will do oh you right. know us so, we're so gonna now screw go up to everything and say what if this very commonly happens some civilization on a planet somewhere like or on, in a solar system it has a, a world government a total government and it basically locks down change and it becomes inefficient it just slows down it innovates less it grows less it won't let people leave and that's like a natural common thing so then they wouldn't be that competent right <laughs> They'd have all these arbitrary and competent government organizations, and they'd have all these arbitrary rules of what people are allowed to do, and they wouldn't allow expansion. And that's what these UFOs look like. They look like they they could be so much more. They are limited in some sort of internal way, and maybe they are a warning that. But now that's not enough to explain okay, them. So, but, but that's are, one big piece. What if so, they are the what if they are a totalitarian religious government that's been around <laughs> for millions of years and has not allowed much change? And is just random and, and inefficient. So you feel that we could have actual alien life forms having encountered Earth, but they wouldn't be from the the grabby type. They're just some. They right. could the be some random space. Ambitious person. and expansive yeah. and competent. It's not them. And very you know able. And these are not them. Yeah. <laughs> so 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 one part of the story is imagine them being some inefficient totalitarian religious regime, and the other part of the story is imagine them being our star's siblings. <laughs> So our son was born in a nursery where, say, 100 stars were born, roughly, 10 to 1,000. And in that sibling, in all those siblings, they were all born at the same time and they all formed at the same time. What if that whole set of siblings was seeded with panspermia from some earlier planet and they all got a primitive form of life? And then they all spread out because they just randomly drifted in the galaxy. And they've all spread around the galaxy by now. But they all had a much higher chance of developing advanced life because they were already halfway down the path. And what if one of the other ones got there first before us? And that's our UFOs here. Right. So then they said, for some religious region, whatever, we're not going to allow expansion. And then they realized our siblings might expand. (laughs) They might do that. And so they made an exception to their outside travel and expansion rules that we have to go and put some people around these sister things to make sure they don't violate our expansion rule. And so they sent, you know, some agency, a sub-agency of their government, sent out a mission to here with put some resources around here to track us and then be ready to stop us if we should violate their rules. We may be in a non-expansionist district and not know it. 
controlled right. by somebody. Right. You, know, but, on, yeah. you know, this agency is is just you know hangs around for millions of years waiting to, to do something. So it's it's it has a lot of slack. It's gonna have a lot of inefficiency. It's gonna have some bureaucracy over it that's mismanaged. And so <laughs> they're just here waiting to uh you know pull the trigger on doing something, but you know, they're, they're bureaucrats. And even though they, maybe they should do something right now, they're waiting for the committees to decide and nobody wants to make the decision. <laughs> and so, you know, they're just, just some going along with their usual, bullshit aliens going along with their usual, you know, they've been following the same procedure for millions of years. They're pretty <laughs> comfortable doing the same thing they've been doing for millions of years. And that's what they're continuing to do. So, so they I'm only care. Saying, so they only care about us in a sense of we could be dangerous to them. They don't actually care about our well, civilization they, they, or any, or anything. The, the data here is consistent with the wide range of attitudes they may have toward us. But the key idea is, you know, they, they, they limit their expansion. They have to, otherwise we'd see the universe full of them, right? <laughs> if they were expansive, the world, the universe would look different. For, so obviously for some reason they limit their activity, right? They don't go very far, but they decided to come here. So that means they have some agenda with respect to us. Keep but, an eye on us or whatever. <laughs> I mean, there's a lot of possibilities there, but I mean, the main thing to explain is, you know, why are they here and not everywhere else? And why are they here now? And, you know, at the same time we are, those are kind of the coincidences we need to explain. And then why aren't they vastly more competent than we see? Why don't they have vastly more capability? Why are they doing all these random pokes, like glowing lights flying over you and following you around? I mean, right. what's with that? How is that a thing an enormously advanced civilization would be doing? So does that make you think, it's not true. That's just in our in our sub, our consciousness that we think, oh, there's something out there, and so that's why all well, these I mean, stories. That would I mean, so obviously people give stories of fairies and elves and things like that, right? And the easy thing to believe would be to throw it in with that bucket, right? Right. And people have done that for a while, but it's just looking like we're getting more and more solid evidence that it's something more than that, <laughs> uh, and you can't you know dismiss it as elves and fairies, right? You gotta come up with some other story. And it's hard to come up with another story. I mean, the main other story you could come up with is there's some super secret society on earth who has vastly more advanced technology than all the nation's militaries, or it's some part of one nation's militaries who has vast capabilities it won't share with the rest of its own military. <laughs> right? I mean, it yeah. boggles the mind trying to come up with that sort of theory. So a UFO theory doesn't seem to be much more <laughs> tortured than that does. And, and so- and- Am I crazy to remember when I was a kid, It, you know, 30 years ago, it just was a very, very different landscape here. I, I thought that I understood that we were in a Goldilocks zone, and that was so rare, and there probably is no other life out there. Was that a colloquial point of view I was receiving? Well, so remember in the story I'm telling you, I'm telling you two things. Like, wait, the, the expansive ones, they're only one every 10 million galaxies, right? So that's a pretty Goldilocks. One per 10 million galaxies mm-hmm. is pretty damn rare, right? And then I say, but there's these other ones nearby. But the story is they have a common origin with us, right? There was this Goldilocks planet before Earth, and it did the early evolution of life, which is extremely rare. And then it seeded a set of stars all together. And then they all went down the last part of the path. Mm-hmm. Yet maybe only one before us ever reached that. And so they're all still really rare, but they're a lot less rare near us in terms of this nursery because, you know, the rareness happened before the nursery. Yeah. And it seems like we got a really long way to go anyway. Like if we went to Mars, it's not like we'd be independent. Like, no, no. So you know. if there really are these aliens around, there isn't a very good prospect for us to defy them. <laughs> 
and, you know, do something against whatever they want. Whatever their agenda is, we're probably going to have to go along with it. And apparently it's an agenda consistent with their limitations on not changing much and doing much, right? I mean, that's the main thing we know about them is they could have remade the galaxy in the universe, but they haven't. So they it may just, not be up to us if we become gravity, even if we can overcome ourselves, basically. Right. So it might have been even without them, it would have been very hard to overcome our temptation toward a you know, world government that locked things down and limited change because that's just such an attractive thing. But with another one of those around who's more advanced than us locking us down, it could be even harder. Yeah. What is your what is your sense on the existential risk that we actually face in over the next thousand years? Do you have anything like a number order of magnitude on that? With just all your knowledge combined thus far well, in your I know lifetime, a lot of people are really focused on artificial intelligence as a risk, and I just really can't see it as such a high risk. Well, first of all, I should say, look, if there's a one percent existential risk, it's worth spending enormous resources on. <laughs> that is, you know, even if we don't take over the whole universe, still taking over the next hundred billion light years, <laughs> hundred million light years is a large region. That is, we still have a large future potential that mm. would be destroyed if we kill ourselves. So mm. it's worth a lot to even stop a small risk. So even if the risk of AI just killing us is 1%, it's still worth spending a lot on to try to deal with that risk. You know, because, hey, you add up 100 1% risks. <laughs> what do you trouble, think right? our largest right. risk is then, if not AI? Well, I mean, I'm actually going to go with the, you know, totalitarian world government. <laughs> yeah, okay. That is, I'd say, over the next, you know, thousand years, it looks really likely that we will have a strong world government and our governments have becoming more intrusive in terms of more surveillance abilities and more ability to repress dissent. I mean, you know, if you think about 1984 or something, you know, that was this dystopia and people, you know, pat themselves on the back that we didn't go there, except, you know, if you look at the powers governments now have, they you really do have wrong. those powers and yeah. around the world they're using them. So, um, they meant 2084. That's Maybe. <laughs> but, I mean, the point is, you know, the powers of governments to find and repress dissent have actually been going up substantially over the last few decades. Mm-hmm. And the continued long term trend toward a world government, I don't see actually declining. So actually, you know, when we talked about COVID a, a year ago, you know, the, one of the most thing, things I most learned about from the pandemic that's striking is not only couldn't we get local regulators to do particular things, but everywhere in the world, they all said the same rules. <laughs> We actually have a pretty integrated regulatory regime in the entire world, and not just for pandemics and drugs. We have it for nuclear power. We have it for airplanes and flight. You look across a wide range of technologies, not only do we have very restrictive regulatory regimes that have just destroyed a lot of the potential of them, but everywhere in the world basically follows the same regulatory rules that restricted in the same way. And so in some sense, we already have half a world government yeah. there. We, right. we, you know. Because all these regulators, they are so following each other. No one country's regulator really wants to deviate from the regulations that other countries choose because it's about sort of an image among the populace. So as long as the world culture and elites talk to each other a lot and have a shared concept of what's acceptable or not, that's enough to create shared regulators that all impose the same rules, in which case we basically have a world government that is slowly shutting down innovation. With the, so, with, with yeah. the world government, is, do you foresee a war coming? Or like a... Like, does America go, well, we have to take over everywhere? Like, like even... It, it, I, I don't think we necessarily has to be via a war. Um, and it probably would go more stable if it isn't. So I, I, 
that that seems to me a relatively minor consideration in the in the overall trend. So so what mostly what likely what will happen is just before a stronger world government appears, some threat will appear that the world government will be used as the excuse as the reason why you need it, right? Is because yeah. it overcame that threat. But and that might be some rogue nation that was trying to fight a war. It might be another pandemic. It might be some terrorist organization or religious organization. Who knows? But it would just be some set of enemies who we need a stronger world government to overcome. And that would be probably the last push that like pushed you over into forming a, a stronger government is to tell everybody, look at this problem. Well, I, yeah. was, I was thinking about, I don't know. I don't know if you have any thoughts on was, was COVID man-made or not. But I was thinking, even regardless of if it actually was or was not, what a prime time to say a country did it and to form a more united world government, right? Like, I mean, it seems, a lot of the stuff I've heard, it seems like maybe it was man-made, maybe it was an accident, maybe it wasn't at all. I don't know. Maybe it really was well, somebody I ate mean, something. Whether it was man-made or not, it's really hard to believe that it was the plan of somebody to cause the worldwide pandemic, right. and that's why, they, if it was man-made, no, it was accidental. No, I totally agree. So, right, it, uh, accidental. So it's kind of independent. It doesn't really matter whether it was man-made or not from the purposes of its political effects, because nobody was intending. But basically, you know, many people say don't waste a, a crisis or whatever, that Right. There are many political factions waiting around for a big thing to go wrong, and then they're all ready to come up with their solutions. And you right. know, that's just the way the political world works. Well, that's what I was so. thinking. If you could, if you could blame the pandemic on a country and then get some other countries, maybe that would move to a one a one world government. Maybe even right. I, 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 they're like all you steps. Said. But I mean, the the point is the long term trends over the last centuries are so consistently toward large organizations. It doesn't really matter what local factors would you know cause the last few things to come into place. The more fundamental thing is just look at these long, strong, long-term trends. How are they really going to be overcome? So this the, the it's there's the emergent structures of all these that are just consolidating over time, and so the da- that's right. the danger. So so, the- so like nations are coming together with coalitions of nations, but within each nation's functions are moving up to higher scales. If you look at who does a task, it used to be done right at, at a, a small part of a neighborhood, then it moves up to a city, then it moves up to a county, to a state, to federal. Seeing the tasks rise up in where they're done is a big clue that we're moving toward a larger world. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, then then the last step of integrating things is much easier when they're already being done at a high level. And the it only really takes larger. It only takes one time for us to get to a totalitarian surveillance state, and then that's lockdown forever, right? I mean, not well, so, like, I mean, I'm not making major, a lockdown joke, but if if North Korea well, had all surveillance and AI. Well, the, they're the even harder to overthrow. Government is hard to undo, right? Right. You so can't how can you point, get out of it. We we don't have a world government, and then we say, "Do we want one?" And then, like every year, we ask the question, and every year we say no. And then there's only a one percent per year chance that we say yes. <laughs> then in a hundred years, eventually we say yes. And then after that, if we no ask more the chance, question, no more do we want a world government? Yeah. We don't get to ask the question, right? I mean, but it can monitor every every possible communication. Will be mo- by the time we get there, it's not as if anything you say couldn't be monitored. So dissent will be impossible. Like on the, in the techno totalitarian surveillance well, state, I mean, in can't. a sense, it's more that dissent will be managed. So people want to live in a world they believe has dissent. I think most people would be a lot more hard to manage and unruly if they thought they lived in a world where no dissent was allowed. So people will be allowed to believe there is dissent, and of course there will be dissent. <laughs> it just won't matrix, be dissent yeah. that is capable of really overthrowing. So I mean. The Revolt of the Public is this book that showed up about 10 years ago by, I guess, Martin Gurry. And he basically has this interesting description of how revolts across the world up until that point had this interesting feature that they had such an ethic of 
nobody was in the center running the revolt. They had to be egalitarian in the revolt. They wouldn't allow any representatives who could negotiate on its behalf. And so they never really could achieve much <laughs> because they could never form an organization that could, you know, do things organized way. So like in the Hong Kong protests, the same thing. What, at a previous at a protest, they, they arrested the leaders. So this time they decided, oh, we're not going to have leaders. We're just going to have our demands and, and all of us will be equal. But then, you know, when it comes down to trying to negotiate for some thing, there's nobody who can negotiate for them. And so in some sense, we've seen these kind of protest movements that are by their internal structure incapable of being very effective dissent because, you know, they, they don't, they refuse to organize. And so that's just an example of how you can promote and have dissent and dispute and protest without actually having a substantial threat to the regime. And we can feel that a little bit today, like as we everybody's doing all their show of everything, but it's really just it's neither here nor there, and the the true power. Right, like things people just have go on said that on. about, say, the Capitol protest, right, in December, right, that it was LARPing. They didn't have a serious plan to take over the government; that they wanted to go through this, you know, LARP, this this play acting, you know, scene where they showed on camera that they were active, caring, you know, passionate people. But it, it didn't have a chance of actually changing the regime because it wasn't organized well enough to do that. I mean, that, and that's been, again, over the last few decades, this characteristic of a lot of mass protests. People aren't yeah. willing to put people in charge. They aren't willing to have an organization right. that they divert to and accept. They just want to all be equals together in a big public event. And, you know, that that's a kind of protest that a world government can accept. Yeah. <laughs> right. Wow. It's just entertainment. So LARPing could be, I mean, are we, we're up against a stagnation of, or something or like a choice here if we're going to be active agents in our future, basically. And, you know, if religion is waning in some ways, uh, this, this new cosmology kind of is necessary to motivate action, action instead of just we LARP I, ourselves I into if, it. I don't know what's necessary or even what's effective, but I just know people have a hunger for a cosmology. The existing cosmologies aren't very satisfying to people, and it's a mark in a cosmology's favor if it looks true. <laughs> so this seems to me an attractive cosmology because there's solid arguments why it should be true, and it also has the emotionally satisfying elements of there being like a, a heaven that we could reach, the, the world of all the integrated grabby aliens who will be active with each other. Could we join that heaven? Well, it's not guaranteed. We would need to work hard for it. There's the temptations early on of becoming the stagnant world government, like the, the UFOs if, around if they're aliens and, and what they're like. That's the warning of the, of the failure mode we could become if we don't choose well. And that seems to me a motivating cosmology of, you know, there, there's the win, but it's rare and hard. And there's the easy, tempting lose. And um, what will we choose? What will we do? Well, there's something even more beautiful in it to me is that if we're to meet the loud, obnoxious aliens out there, I'd love to be one of those obnoxious aliens one day, but we would have to ha we, we could mingle with them. And if we show up useful with something unique yeah. that we have developed that to contribute, then right, so I, I what we about, do now. I wrote about that in one of my early blog posts, which is, if we become an expansive alien and we finally meet them, that's not the end of the game. Now the question is, do we deserve to be listened to by the rest of them? Do we have something to add to the world of yeah. expansive aliens? Because they're going to meet each other. Each one, they're going to hear about hundreds of others. They're going to hear what their culture is like and their politics is like. And they will, there'll be an era of, say, 100 billion years 
where they all influence each other and maybe conquer each other and, and mix together. And we could be part of that mix. That would be the win scenario if we become expansive and last that long. But then at that point, it's not the end of history. Now the question is, did humanity manage to make something that was worth copying and emulating or at least listening to yeah. in the grand mix of all the other aliens? Like, is there something unique and human on Earth that when it gets up there, it'll be us? Like, we get to merge with the, the big thing, and it'll be appreciated somehow. And that's that's right. what and we that, could strive to be. To, right? Yeah, exactly. Both we should try to expand and last, but we'd also try to be a thing worth lasting. A yeah. thing that later on people would have been glad at last, that that was a thing they wanted to take from it and draw from. And But would it be likely, in your view, that it wouldn't just be raw power? Once they all meet and it would be appreciation, how do we make the flip to where all of the grabby aliens are likely to be appreciators well, well, of us? One others? of the things is probably be in terms of raw physical technology, they'll be almost equal when they meet. They will all have sort of maxed out on knowing all the physics particles and all the ways to extract energy from the universe and to you know do military things. So when they meet, they will probably at a local level have pretty evenly matched physical abilities. And so that's a reason to expect some rapid peace, at least in the short term, is because, you know, war would be so destructive. But in the long term, of course, they could form alliances and coalitions and, you know, a big group could can jump, you know, jump down on a small one. And so there's certainly a lot of potential for long term conflict, but it would be probably more in the sense of, you know, politics and coalitions where they each work together and, and conspire to to take out an enemy or something, right? Yeah. Rather than just a raw physical winning on, at the front. They may have some form of diplomacy as an advanced feature or something, but essentially. And it's a new experiment of pioneering. And it will be here in, you know, 500 million years. <laughs> right. And so, so that, I mean, if you say, I don't care about 500 million years, that's fine. Because, <laughs> you know, it's, it's fine for most people to say, you know, I care about my family and the world around right. me. And, but we just do seem to have seen over thousands of years, people do like these larger cosmologies, right? Mm -hmm. uh, larger cosmologies really have grabbed people's attention and they sort of often beat out for emotional allegiance uh, for people willing to come together behind the sh shared thing. And you know, it seems to me like that won't go away soon. But it sounds <laughs> it, like there's something to do. Like we had to create a story that's better than LARPing. I mean, that's just what, that's what it feels like to me. That's just my, but you I don't mean, know what they'll, but you don't know what they'll like the aliens. You don't know what like, uh, this, y'all right. are talking. This reminds me exactly. Uh, I know y'all don't watch the cartoon Rick and Morty, but they I do. Yeah. I love you Rick do. and Morty. You know, the episode where the uh, alien comes down and goes, show me what you got. And they, and, and, and Rick is the smartest man in the whole universe, <laughs> but they can't do And they come up with this song called get swifty. It's like get swifty <laughs> and the aliens like it and they save the planet and every Everything because the plant. If you right. don't, if you don't show them what you got and win, they destroy your planet. And I was thinking when y'all were talking, right. obviously, if aliens get to us, our technology won't be what they want. It might be poetry, Bon Jovi, right? Yeah, Bon want. Jovi or something. They right? Like, living like, on a prayer and what it, that fucking feels like, right. and maybe well, so that's so enough the, if we can just get it out there. Is that we for a hundred million years? we won't meet them and we will be anxious and anxiety and going over this in our minds and conversation over and over again for a hundred million years saying, what is it about us that could be special and different? Yeah. <laughs> and so one of the main pieces of data in that hundred million years we would find is we would find the other quiet aliens that we would come across, maybe their remnants or something. And that would give us maybe some clues to what these 
expansive aliens could be like, right? Just meeting any aliens and getting some details about them would tell you something about sort of the distribution of alien cultures and styles. And so we would be really interested in paying attention to if we became expansive grabby into the others who, who failed at that or, or chose not to and seeing what they're like and seeing like what went wrong and, and what sort of right. different attitudes, that would be a thing we paid a lot of attention to, but we would also say, what? Well, but what if the grabby ones aren't like that? Right. <laughs> we won't know till we meet them. Yeah. But it could be an Eminem rap song that saves the entire planet. Right. <laughs> like it doesn't even, I mean, it might not be, you, but it couldn't, it, it wouldn't, there's not some just, Pareto distribution or something that just says it's a winner take all with grabby. Like it's just going to well, be one and whichever is the strongest or maybe the first by like they say with AI, like the first super intelligence. Well, it takes over. So it's not going to be I mean, one. The, a main thing of humans for a million years has been that within groups of human bands of say 20 to 50, the main thing that was important was coalitions, right? So in, in a group of chimpanzees, in a group of gorillas or something, just the strongest gorilla wins, and that's just it. But even in a group of chimpanzees, it's a coalition of chimpanzees who win. They aren't necessarily the strongest ones. They're the best organized and the most loyal to each other. Mm, so right. uh, that's just been a fact about humans for a long time. It's companies and nations all over. It's it's about a combination of your, your raw individual strengths and your alliances and coalitions that you form. And that's almost surely how this would play out, too. So. Uh, you know, it would be about what other aliens could we make feel like they were our buddies and that we were loyal to them and they were loyal to us and we were simpatico and that Diplomacy we wanted, you know, it's, like, and, yeah. it's like the way England and the United States try to tell themselves, like, you know, we're extra special buddies and we'll be with, we'll have each other's back right. forever. But and, not like England coming over, like the Europe coming over to the Americas and the tribes here, like, uh, you know, the difference in well, that quiet, like, a, that's the difference a in very quiet big loud. difference in technology, right? So yeah, at that okay. point, but if when the grabby aliens meet, they're almost all exactly the same technology because like the other imperial nation technology okay. then they can't do that right they they you know, yeah. you know it's always possible one of them will have some extra trick that the others won't have and that'll give it an advantage but yeah well uh, I, I was gonna say robin we really appreciate you being on here when this is i can't <laughs> wait for you to come back but th- i don't even want to start here but this all leads me to go is, is this even real or are we just in a simulation anyway like, is this just some game we're playing that some creator, like it feels more and more, the, the funniest thing in my lifetime, when we were talking about te- technology yeah. at the beginning, is that the church told me that God was a creator and that he, we came from his mind. It, we, there was nothing. And then from God's thoughts and, and then it, then there was this movement to you're wrong. There is no God. And, and, and now it feels like we're headed back to that that there is some creator that there there is some, like it's hilarious intelligent so, you know, design intelligent yeah, I've, design I've, seems real now i've written on <laughs> more potential argument before and you know i'm the one who wrote about how to live in a civil simulation people almost never always talk about whether it's true but they don't talk about if it's true how should you live your life differently so i wrote about that and there are some ways that you become a little different but honestly i think the odds that we're in a simulation are low and, and here's why if, if you look that is if you say what would happen is that the future would get bigger and richer and they would be capable of running more and more simulations. And so the question is how many people are there now versus how many people are there in the future that are being simulated as if they were in their past. And that total number is probably going to be large. But the key thing I notice is people lose interest very quickly as you move farther back into history in the ways we simulate. So movies and games and LARPing, 
ways that we play history, we almost never play history from someone 10,000 years ago. <laughs> mm -hmm. We are interested in Rome and Greece and, and, you know, the last few hundred years. And so, you know, the, the world populations have doubled roughly every thousand years for the last 10,000 years, uh, you know, but our interest falls away faster than every thousand years, doubling every thousand years. That is, if you go from, say, the year 1,000 to the year zero, the year minus 1,000, minus 2,000, our interest falls away a lot more than a factor of two every one of those thousand years. <laughs> There's, you know, the, the interest in 1000 BC compared to the interest in zero AD is just so much tinier. And then the interest in 2000 BC is just so much tinier. We just lose interest quickly. So that suggests that the future will, may have a lot of simulations, but it'll be of their relatively recent past. Things they can relate to. We almost always, when we do historical novels or historical stories or games, we pick characters and civilizations that are a lot like us so that we can relate more to them. And these strange civilizations that mostly populated the world and strange people in their lives, we just show little interest in because they don't engage us. And so the so question that, is, how much are we like these future people who are going to simulate us? And I got to say, not so much. The, <laughs> people it, between us and them will be a lot more like them, and that's what they'll simulate. The sooner in our future we will be able to simulate a universe like this one, the more likely it would be that we're in a simulation. But like if we could do it next year, this would be right. super useful and you'd have a billions of these simulations just for drug companies alone or whatever. Right, right. But right. in but, 5,000 years, you wouldn't need to simulate this for, for much. Right. It's more like the number of factors of doubling of the economy and, you know, what percentage of the economy can be spent on simulations, really. So, uh, so we're a relatively rich society. So we spend a lot of our large percentage of our wealth on things like fiction and stories because we're so rich and indulgent. But most people in history spent a lot smaller fraction of their income on things like stories. And my prediction is that in the future, they will, might go back to more of that. Although the, the, the incompetent world government aliens, maybe they would have a lot of inefficiency and do a lot of simulations. That, that seems more plausible. They, but they would be smaller and just have a smaller capacity. So they just couldn't do as many. So is simulation a cosmology that's useful to anyone, well, or is that just it, a I mean, something? It is where... a cosmology, and many people find it engaging. Mm -hmm. I just don't think it's true. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, that's been a long been a trade-off. I mean, most people picking cosmologies in history didn't focus so much on whether it was true, right? You got to admit that, right? right? <laughs> yeah. Most cosmologies were chosen for other story purposes, and most compelling stories or movies these days are also not chosen for how realistic they are, right? They're chosen for other emotional elements. But if you want a cosmology that looks true, that's really constraining. You know, the physicists, that, you know, have what they think is at least, you know, a cosmology of the past that looks true in terms of Big Bang and galaxies and all that sort of thing. And that's a cosmology that does look true and it looks awesome in terms of the literal awe-inspiring, but it's also somewhat unmotivating because there aren't agents out there to relate to. Mm -hmm. uh, and so a future that had more agents in it that was true is more of a future you can relate to than a future of expanding galaxies and dying stars, which is what the physicists will tell you about because they don't tell you about what agents will do there because that seems speculative to them. Yeah. Fascinating. Oh, Thank you for taking us on a tour through this. I wanted to say, if it would have come up, that that uh, comment that went by, Amua Mua, if I said it right, that, right. Did you, you saw where that what they figured out what that was. So that isn't, well, that wasn't it. It's not definite, but yeah, there's a plausible theory that that's a chunk of uh, ice or very cold ice, nitrogen ice. What do you the right about? type of, you know, that thing they said that went past from yeah. interstellar yeah, yeah, and yeah. sped up? Yeah. They found the right formula of what type of gas it could be made of that would explain its acceleration. So, 
now. So they're saying, yeah, well, we held out and I think it was nitrogen ice, which would be very bright, which would explain all the light it gave off, which means it could be smaller and therefore have a lower mass and wouldn't need as much gas to push it. And the nitrogen would have a lot of gas, which would push it pretty hard. And, you know, it explains that theory explains a lot of the observations. And so, you know, I got to say more like, I got to say aliens having spread things like that all to universe. That's really weird. (laughs) Mm -hmm. So like that's if, if the UFO aliens had dropped a few of those, I could find that more believable. But if his story is that no, the entire universe is full of these things, these little alien sheets that are just left over, and you go, you know, that's just like a crazy how are there that many aliens who leave this many things and they're all dead and none of them have done anything? Mm-hmm. Yeah, but what about that video I saw where, with John Kerry with lizard eyes? <laughs> Okay. Stumped you. I stumped you, Rob. I haven't seen that one, so I, don't know. <laughs> I will defer to you. Um, and then I saw also where you had commented on that paper about uh, how to how they have said the the one that said that dark matter may be explained by just the oh my gosh right. the, the gravity electro gravityism or whatever it was gravity phys- what was it physics in a while but it was yeah basically. Gravity can be thought of in terms of having an electricity and a magnetism, just like electricity. Gravity magnetism, that's right. So it's a gravitational, uh, you know, gravitomagnetism. So it's a real thing, gravitomagnetism. Most physicists have said that's got to be pretty weak. That can't really matter very much. Five papers have done these calculations saying, no, no, it's a big effect. It's strong. And if it's strong, it would have the following effect on the rotation curves, which would explain them, which means we don't need dark matter to explain those, which is one of the main things we invoke dark matter to explain. All of which would make sense if you believe these theories and they're, you know, good math and working out carefully. But I figured out that they all make a key assumption that seems pretty wrong. But that's (laughs) huge, though, (laughs) like that. That's like so big. And, and, you know, I'm how I'm just trying to get in in your head on that because you've tweeted it and said that. And it's this paper that said that the whole thing about dark matter might not be real. I don't don't know if it's huge because most most other physicists and and astrophysicists said, now that can't be true. But, but there were these set of five papers who said, no, it is true. And, and that you have to take that seriously because they were all published and they, they look solid if you look at them. And, you know, at least you don't look really carefully. So it's it's a question, a, a set of things that seemed like that couldn't possibly be true. But people do the math and say it is true. You know, you know that's the nature of news and research, right? We all have our expectations about things. And the whole point of people going and studying things is they find things that violate our expectations. Right. If you're never going to believe people who tell you things that tell you their expectations are wrong, why ever get some news? Why ever have people do research? Right. So, yes, we expect that this couldn't happen. But then these people go study it and they say, yeah, no, you're wrong. This thing can happen. And here's our math. And they've then got why, five does, why are people oppose that. it so much? Direct, I mean, why isn't it? Because it does look implausible in the sense that you do a simple calculation. and You say how much gravitomagnetism would there be? And it looks like it would be very little. It looks like it should be a very weak effect. But, you know, there's a difference between doing sort of a back of an envelope calculation where you try to guess the size of an effect and then doing a full calculation where you take everything into account. Sometimes full calculations show you things that are different from a back of the envelope calculation. Mm -hmm. And so unless you're only ever willing to do back of the envelope calculations and believe them, you know, sometimes you got to try to do the full model and see if the simple model is misleading. Right. And so that's what these people said. They said the simple model is misleading here. Really, guys. We've got these more complicated math models. We did it five different ways. We keep all getting the same answer. You got to start believing us. That that's the situation here. And that and, you know, and, when, and generically with a situation like that, you, you got to listen to it somewhat, right? I mean, you got to say, well, maybe. But I is it not wrong. getting listened to? Or well, it, it is. wasn't getting listened to that much because most people said, "Nah, that can't be right." <laughs> <laughs> 
And but it might be a, true that there's no such thing as dark energy and dark matter. Well, of course, I mean, that could be true independently of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I mean, basically, we're still in the early stages of, of collecting evidence. And so we're still not that sure. I mean, people have a best story and it fits with a number of things, but there's a bunch of things that are still troubling that are difficult to understand. So I, I don't think we're enormously confident of dark matter and dark energy, but whether this alternative explanation would explain it, I mean, there's a lot of people who have various proposed alternative explanations, and people mostly go, "Yeah, that doesn't make much sense." <laughs> well, you said it should, might win a, be a Nobel Prize winner, like that. Well, be a when big... I looked at it, I basically said, "Well, look, this is an important question. They claim that one of our standard conceptions is wrong. They have this, you know, careful math that looks very solid. You know, unless we're never going to believe our theories, <laughs> you know, we got to kind of like, oh, you worked it out. It looks very careful. It looks like you draw the conclusion. So, you know, and then I find out later, there's five, four other papers that do the same thing with different methods and different approach, all get the same answer. And you go, oh, <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe, maybe something's true here, right? But, mm-hmm. you know, what if they all made the same mistake? Well, that seems unlikely, doesn't it? Yeah, but what if? So I, I dug in and basically I think I found the mistake. It's sort of at a very basic assumption level, which is where you expect the mistake to be. That is, you don't expect them to have made a math mistake along the way because five different things, they, would, they wouldn't all make the same math mistake. It was a key assumption right at the beginning. And it's an assumption where they just weren't thinking carefully about the concepts and what they mean. And this is a common thing that happens in economics and apparently in physics too. As a theorist, you're so used to using the mathematics and twisting it and being fancy with it that you forget to think about what the symbols mean. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know therefore when the which symbols are appropriate where and I, I certainly see that a lot in economics and that happened to be true here so it's the idea of pressure they said well in a galaxy there's zero pressure right and what of course they mean is between the stars there's very little stuff which of course is true but the stars themselves are pressure uh and they were talk, talking about stars flying around so basically in a galaxy in a, say a big elliptical galaxy you know, things are going around in a circle, but stuff off near the pole, how does that stuff held up? Well, it's basically held up because things are going in orbit, going up and down and up and down, right? Flying up and falling back down. Well, that's that stuff going up and down, that's pressure. So in our atmosphere at the moment, the pressure goes lower as you go up into the atmosphere, right? And that's because up there, there are fewer atoms and down here, there's more atoms. And that doesn't have anything to do with the atoms hitting each other. As it could be if the atoms never hit each other. Still, atoms down here, there'd be a lot more of them, and some of them would happen to fly up, and some of them would get really high, and those ones would slow down, and there'd be fewer of them, and that's lower pressure. And so these people have confused, like, saying stars hardly ever collide, so there's no pressure. With the I know, like, pressure is how many things would pass through any one plane with how much momentum. It doesn't matter whether they hit each other. It matters that they, if there was something there to hit, they would hit it, and how much momentum they would transfer. Pressure is momentum transfer per, per unit time if there were something to hit. But in the galaxy, these stars are just flying past each other. They don't hit anything. But if there were something to hit, these huge stars would whack into them, and that would be a lot of pressure. And in fact, the amount of pressure that is is roughly the pressure that, that stands against gravity. That is, the stars at the high end of the, of the galaxy, in some sense, on average, are up there because the pressure is lower up there and the pressure is higher down below, just like in the atmosphere. What holds up air high is because the, the pressure below is higher. Mm-hmm. Pressure low, gets lower as you go up in the atmosphere because the air in between is being held up by the pressure below. And that's what holds up stars at the top of the galaxy is, again, that movement. So they just said it's low zero pressure and they did all the math that way and the the key thing is that when you calculate what could hold something up 
in the simple models they're doing, there's only pressure and magnetism. So since they said there's zero pressure, then their math said, oh, it must be a lot of magnetism. That's how the math would work out, right? That was the only way the math models could make their assumptions work. They assume things are all rotating and they're all staying at the same place in a static sort of rotating situation and the stuff is staying up there and their math allowed magnetism and they assume zero pressure. So their math had to tell them there's a lot of magnetism. I see. Well, the thing that is in common about all the stuff that we talk about and that you talk about is that it is, it, it's frustrating and painful that it's always not as easy as you would want it to be. And it's not as much like a story as you want it to be. And I, it frust that's why I just have such a dissonance and resonance when I read your stuff and see how you interact. Cause it always frustrates me because it, it poisons a lot of narratives I want to believe even that one and everything right. else. And, and so I find you to be uh, all over the place on those in a way that feels reliable to me because it's often, you know, not lining up right. with what you'd want it to be. And so that that's pattern of thinking I, I find fascinating. I appreciate you spending time with us. Right. So you should expect the truth not to fit easily with simple moral stories or the stories you wanted to hear. Mm -hmm. Although, unfortunately, it's easy to just satisfy that by being random. <laughs> so if that's all you were looking for in someone, they're just being random would make them look good by that. So then you presumably need some other indicators that what they say actually makes sense and they're not just being random. But yeah. if, if they if they in other ways try to make sense and they're also not fitting with what you should expect to see if somebody was just trying to tell you what you want to hear, then that is a good indication that maybe they're seeing what's true. Reliable. That's a, a way to look yeah. at reliability. Yeah. Yes. Well, thank you, Robin, for yeah. for uh, you know spending the time with us to go to fun. go through a bunch of stuff. We love it. That was, that yeah, was we, great. Maybe we should talk religion one of these times. Yeah, I would your, love to. I want, what, I want, what, we didn't even and, hardly get into the pandemic stuff. I, I want. Yeah. I mean, you made this prediction that if we like low dosed people and put them yeah. in you know gymnasiums and, and, stuff, and then I, we just never allowed that. So that's the big you're right. thing. You did, know, we, did you? Did nobody you anywhere allowed that. Did you run a model at all? Like, do you think like right now there's like what 500 and something thousand people who died. If we would have done your plan, did you run a number of what, how many, well, I mean, cause there would have still been deaths. I, but, I think almost everybody who has studied the, you know, the idea of doing challenge trials early on thinks that they would have made a huge difference. That's just not disputed. <laughs> What's disputed is, Oh, but wouldn't that be unethical? <laughs> And then the other people say, are you crazy? That that's, that's fine. And then other people say, no, no ethics means the following. And then, you know, that's where they're off and running. Right. But right. The, the other thing I might say is, is about the pandemic is just, we can just look at the overall harm and then the overall amount spent on preventing harm as an indication of whether we were doing too much. So just in general, when you, when you spend a certain amount to prevent harm, and then there's a certain amount of harm that's, you know, happens anyway, the ratio between those things has to be related to what's called the elasticity of, of, of effect of F effort. That is, if you spent 1% more on prevention, how much more harm would have been stopped? So I estimate roughly that we spent about five times as much on preventing the harm as the harm that actually happened. It's inefficient use of, of right. So that could be true if when you spend 1% more on prevention, you get 5% more reduction. So for example, locks on doors, right? People almost never break into houses. It's an extremely rare thing. And nevertheless, we spend all these money on locks and doors. You might say, is it a waste to spend locks on doors? You might say, well, no, but a little more spending on the lock has a huge effect on whenever anybody comes into your place. So that, then it's worth it. So 
it's, a, it's about the ratio between the harm and the harm and the prevention and the marginal effectiveness of prevention. So when prevention is really effective, when a little bit more prevention gives you a long way, then often it's worth spending a lot more on prevention than the harm you prevent because you're, you're squashing it so much. That's just not believable though in the case of this pandemic. I, I just don't believe that if we had spent 1% more on lockdown, we would get 5% fewer people died from COVID. That's crazy. That's just not plausible, at least at, through most of the, the period of the pandemic. So that makes me think we're just spending too much, way too much. We have just, you know, not only suffered the loss from the pandemic and people getting harmed by the health, including myself, because I got COVID, but we're even more so hurting all the people who don't have jobs, don't get educated in school, can't go meet each other, get lonely, take, get suicide, uh, depressed. I mean, all these other harms, they're, they're real and you can count them up. And like I say, standard measures of, of counting these ups would say we're spending, we're losing five times as much on the prevention as we are in the harm prevent. Mm, double loss or five times loss or whatever. Maybe yeah, we, five to one. Um, let's decide what, what, what was on your mind a minute ago when you said that we could talk religion next time or Christianity. What was well, so, I mean, that? You called that a Christian podcast yeah. and I have yeah. a Christian background. I just thought, well, you know, we could talk a bit about That'll be good. Any religion sometime, you know, I don't yeah. know what we'd say, but you know, it's the obvious <laughs> thing to talk about. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just stay on that one but topic. The for we the this cosmology. We have been talking about a cosmology. So the right. relation we have, it's said, look, one of the things about Christianity compared to say more previous views is the cosmology it presented. Right. Mm -hmm. And other religions like say, uh, you know, Islam also presented a similar cosmology that was very motivating to many people. And it's interesting to think about what about that cosmology is attractive to people. And then today's sort of standard official cosmology, what's so unattractive or unmotivating about it? Because it's remarkable how people today, when they see this whole universe depending on them, like, like you said in the quote, they, they say, oh, yeah, <laughs> they yeah. can't seem to care. <laughs> or think it's bad to try to do anything. Like to me, I divide people into people that there's, uh, there's the people that are, you better not. And there's all manner of people, but their default feeling is you better not do that. And then there's the other people who are like, why not? I mean, it takes a little bit to be the a why not, but yeah. you know, there's a risk there. But the better not mentalities, we, uh, I, I I don't understand it. It's like hall monitors at school or something. I don't I don't so understand I don't why they want to be that science way. Science fiction, but uh, you know, classically, say in the 1950s or so, science fiction was celebrating and even pushing people on to great accomplishment and expansion. It was kind of like you know the Cold War and and you know humanity and after World War II was this idea of very ambitious and let's go out and do huge things. And then there was a reaction over the following decades to that of people not only in general who thought colonization and capitalism et cetera were going too far and hurting too many things. And so they wanted to tell science fiction stories where people were doing less and less ambition and more personal stories in somebody's life and how they're relating to their family, you know, some sort of moral, terrible thing that happens and things like that. And there was more of a dislike of ambitious alien civilizations in science fiction stories and more of a, you know, celebration of the old ways and, and that sort of thing. And so even today, you know, most science fiction is not very interested in the expansive possibilities of future humanity. It's still focused much more on gender relations and race relations and age relations and class relations. And, you know, all these things set maybe in a future world where the lesson is we shouldn't be doing so much to nature and we shouldn't be having so many capitalists and all that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. 
That's what yeah. I, I, I was talking to Matt today. I was thinking, what if aliens landed here and the way we are now, we so miss the point that we miss out on like the great technology and all that stuff. Because when the alien lands, we want to know the specific, the right pronouns to say. We want to know <laughs> if they abort their children. We want to know oh, yeah. or, or don't or are pro. You know, you know. We want to know how they treated their plant, like all that stuff. And then we just missed like the, you know, that they could right. solve world hunger and clean right, our well, waters the, immediately. The we miss all that. Mo- that story of what the actual UFO aliens are like, because that's exactly what they might be like. <laughs> That is, they have this advanced technology, but they haven't improved it in forever. And they've, you know, produced a static world. And maybe they're really obsessed with various moral rules they have and whether we're following or not. And that's all they're interested about in us, maybe. Right. <laughs> Damn. Yeah. Ideological aliens come land and just. Well, I mean, that's, that's part of trying more, to explain come why, down here, are, moral why police are, us to death. Why are they aren't vastly more capable than we see? Right. And why are they doing these like really seemingly silly things? that aren't hiding and aren't showing themselves and they're just kind of randomly poking so, oh, us. Okay, so you're saying there is evidence that the uh, whoever might be our most closest aliens advanced over us are hall monitors. And, you know, essentially. Yes. That Great. Is, if, if we look at, you know, the UFO behavior and we try to explain well, it, we, we can't really say they're like expansive aliens taking over the universe. That, they're not that so progressive. Fit. Yeah. And their technology, while advanced, doesn't seem crazy advanced. Right. It's 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 right. modestly advanced. And then it's not very functional. It's not just not achieving much. <laughs> like what what is the point of all this stuff they're doing? It's really hard to find a point other than they, you know, they have some program and they're just keep following it million years after million year. <laughs> and, and so they just bullshit, seem somewhat incompetent or, yeah. or you know, <laughs> dysfunctional. Right. These are not, I mean, my story would be these are not the aliens we want to emulate or become like. <laughs> And we'd like oh. maybe to convince them to, to, to break out of this thing they're stuck Maybe in. they come and we can turn out. it around for them. Like, they got to come yeah. down here, find our music, find the stories we're going to create, take it back, and then turn them around to get make them get loud. Well, so, so the interesting thing is, like, what if they are kind of hands-off with respect to us? So inside their society, they have really strong censorship and rules about who's allowed to say what. But with respect to us, they don't stop us from doing saying what we say. Because they have this hands-off policy. Well, then we might be able to say things that they hear <laughs> that they can't say to themselves. Yeah. So we might have something to offer. <laughs> yeah. Now, eventually get... that might piss them off so much that they shut us down and lock us down. But, you know, right. it's at least a, a hope. Well, so we're we... The, we're, yeah, we're just the real housewives in New Jersey, maybe to them. <laughs> right. Like that's, we're entertainment in a way. Uh, Robin, this has been great, man. Golly, I can't wait till you come back. Seriously, this was uh, once again. All every right. single time you're here is so awesome. So we we appreciate we'll your talk time. Again, this guys. Great. Yep, for sure. Take care. See you, Robin. You too.